You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. We preserve the history and sport of hunting through curious conversation and action-packed hunts, as well as offering you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. Addictive is any drug. It's probably more addictive than crack, cocaine, heroin, and everything put together. <laughs> Tell me how good it is. I said, I'm going to be nice. <laughs> I said, it's better than sex. He goes, oh, come on now. I said, there's no comparison. He goes, I don't believe that. And I said, well, you'll see. He kills his first buck. He looked at me and he goes, you were right. It's better than sex. <laughs> Sign the contract. Oh, give him the money. See you later. They come back that night. They'd shoot him, kill him, Take build the, the fence money. a little bit bigger, tear the damn thing up, and then go knock on the next door neighbor's door. Well, pretty soon people just start running because they knew they were dead. Where's the obsession to go and say, I'm going to spend the night in here? Well, <clears throat> for one thing, the one-day hunt is the toughest hunt of all. He'd been on my trail 17 miles for three days, and he did not find one piece of toilet paper where I wiped my ass, you know? <laughs> I mean, he knew I didn't litter the joint. And it was just freaking game, buddy. I'm telling you, it was less than a $100 fine. If they didn't get you in the ranch, it, it wasn't going to break $100. Sounds like something out of Yellowstone, the new TV show that's all the race. It, you know, really, I'd, I'd call the King Ranch of Yellowstone, South Texas. No doubt. Yeah. There ain't no doubt about it. Someone should do a movie about the King Ranch and all the you know, hierarchy and the corruption. And they were busting them. They busted 80-something people the first year doing that most amount of Houston, San Antonio. And the 60-something the next year. But the shootout takes place when they corral five guys from Houston. When he saw Buck, Bunny Crockett, he saw dollar signs. And I just went, <laughs> and when I did that, that buck just boom, 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 right to us in three leaps. He closed 40 yards or so. I don't ever want anybody to think that you can do this stuff anymore. I mean, no. I don't want somebody to get in trouble. Even trying. Yeah, I don't just, want to encourage you know, kids to get in trouble. Hell no. I mean, I, I enjoy being able to tell y'all about it and try to explain because it was such a... Oh. We, we don't agree that people should go poach spotlight no. shoot a deer off the road any sort of those things like that i don't i want people to know what if when they buy this book where some of that money's gonna go well mine's my daughter yeah he's not bsing about it Pat's gotten soft i think we both have <laughs> he hugs those little autistic kids in his daughter's school and his heart breaks you know and they love him I they have. hang on him like their own daddy that they never had a smile on her face past her ears and I had to go to my damn office because I freaking tears were coming out of my damn eyes, you know? I understand it, but it was, you know, without blemish, no sin. It was pure love. And that's when he said, you love them, don't you? And I said, yes, sir. He said, doesn't matter what they've done, either does it. And I said, no, sir. He said, I love them, too. I need someone to tell them for me. Hey, guys, Christian Babcock here of The Hunter's Advantage. Before we got into the podcast episode with Charlie and Pat, I did want to say make sure to subscribe to the channel because we have all kinds of hunting videos, all kinds of podcasts, reviews, those sort of things coming to the YouTube channel every single week we try to post. So make sure to sub so you don't miss any of our content. I don't want you guys to think that we are advocating for poaching in any way, so I'm going to let Jake 
do a little bit of talking from a recent TikTok video that he did just on this subject. So let's key over to the Jake and then we'll get right into the episode. Here lately, we've been getting a lot of comments like this, basically saying that poaching is a serious crime and we shouldn't be giving it a voice on any platform to speak on. And I totally see where you're coming from and in some ways I agree with you. But for people like Charles Beatty and Pat Lane, that really wasn't a serious crime back in their heyday. It was like a $100 fine and a slap on the wrist. We're still not saying that's right, but I mean, go talk to one of your grandparents, go talk to someone else's grandparents if yours wasn't into hunting. I bet you they'll have some stories that you think's a little bit shady, but as Pat and Charlie say, like that's just the way it was back then. We're really not advocating poaching by just interviewing them. You know all those little murder documentaries that your wife or girlfriend loves to watch where they sit down and have a conversation with an axe murderer that, that murdered their whole family and part of their town. Why do you think they're so obsessed with those? Because the stories are mind boggling and they're just interesting to watch. By them putting their shows on Netflix or Hulu, they're not advocating for people to go murder everybody. And that's kind of the same thing we're doing. We're not telling people, oh yeah, it's cool to poach. We're just sharing their stories because they truly are incredible. Don't get me wrong, poaching's a super touchy subject and I 100% see where you are coming from. Plus, they don't poach anymore. They haven't in a very long time. On top of that, they are super easygoing, down-to-earth people. So, if you don't want to listen to it, you don't have to. All right, welcome back. Uh, Hunter's Advantage podcast number 98. Today, we're joined by Pat Lane and Charles Beatty. Thank you guys for coming on the, the show. Yeah, wouldn't have missed it for the world. I mean, this is what I've been wanting to do. But if Joe no Rogan calls, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Well, I got both of your books on uh, right here on the table today. What's uh, I know yours have been out for a couple, a few years now, two or four, three, four, year, four years four now, years. and yours yours came out last year, correct? Uh, it's about ten months. Ten months, yeah. What's what's been the feedback on the on the book for you since you've had it out? I know you've had a lot of. Well, so many people have wrote me about the history. They like that, and and part of me doing that book like that is. I kind of wanted to paint a picture if I could mm -hmm. about that area and, and my buddy, Charlie in, in that Kennedy over there, people have a hard time understanding just how big that place is. You know, it's 440,000 acres and that gives them a good aerial view, but people just, man, I can't believe this and that, you know, and it, they like the history. They really do. But then them old stories, uncle Zenus and the bunch and stuff, you know, it's just a way of life back then. And it was a way, di way different than it is now. The, then yeah, that, then the, I get the same comment all the time. What's your favorite story in the book? <laughs> My favorite story in that book's the last page, and I didn't write it. You know, and I just leave it at that. Just let them find it when they get the book. You know. Yeah. Well, you, you talked about us living in a different time, and I think we live in a much different time than you all's heyday. Oh. And what is it that that people don't under? This is something I wanted to ask with both of you here because you both have different styles of doing this. Is what what do people get wrong or they don't understand about what you guys used to do or the time that you guys grew up in? Well, I can only speak for myself because I said I quit in 83 and that was 39 years ago. And that's when they changed the law. And, uh, and I met that girl and I wasn't going to let her get away, you know? And so I got married and I just quit because I saw the handwriting on a wall. And uh, Charlie, you know, you, you hunted, we met in 77. That's the same year I quit, started going to church. Yeah. And that was funny. When he said that, it hit me. I went, well, I quit then too. But in 90, went back to it after the divorce and, you know, the child custody battle. Well, and the police officers talking me in to kick it off. See, so 
I mean, who would have thought that? <laughs> that's what happened. But it was their love for hunting that sent me back to it, not my own. I found my love for hunting again through going and taking them, but I did that for them. Then it, you know, sort of switched over into a vengeance, you know, like what had been done wrong to me during the divorce, losing my son. You know, I started becoming a different person. I wasn't hunting for the love of, you know, hunting anymore. I, I started taking out some, you know, vindictive actions on it, you know, dragging deer caped off out in roads and stuff, just to aggravate the game wardens and all. And just kind of lashing back at the injustice. I didn't like what I saw myself becoming, but I recognized it and I knew, you know, I knew why I was being that way. But then I got back lost in, in love for hunting and, you know, I loved the long hunts then. They came then. Once I started going on those long hunts, there was a peace. There was a healing. There was, you know, a, a reconciliation of itself. I was like, this is what I need to focus on. I don't need to focus on the past anymore. I need to just move forward. And I did, you know, what, you know, big time. <laughs> so I've had both of you on individually. Mm -hmm. um, and people. I don't think a lot of people are going to understand how you – intertwined together so could you like maybe briefly talk about maybe how you guys met and how you guys got hooked up together well, in my in my book I, I got a story called prince poachers and I, I remember when i met him but the first time i ever laid eyes on charlie was in that taxidermy shop in kingsville and he was moving into that bird room and i remember that taxidermy said yeah this guy he, he good you know yeah then of course we ran into each other out there on that road after that nail guy. Me and you—that's how we became friends. Yeah, we've been friends during the Battle of the Bulls. You can read the story. <laughs> I'm down there, 77 South, by myself one Saturday morning, and I've done hammered four bulls. I'm working on the fourth one. <laughs> the first three just ran off like I shot them with a BB gun. So I'm over the hood on my coat, getting off my last finishing shots on this one bull about 70 yards off the fence. And I look over to my left, and they snuck up on me. It was Pat and his uncle, Fred Hornsby, you know, behind the wheel. I looked over there at them, and I, when I recognized them, I was like, well, they snuck up on me. I said, well, that's Pat. I'm like, get out of my way. I'm trying to finish this bull. They were like, you crazy son of a bitch. And they pulled on around me. I broke his neck when he got up that last time. But, you know, I ended up not going after any of them on my boss's advice. He said, don't go back. They're going to find all four of them bulls tonight. Right before dark, they'll fly 77 like they always do, looking for illegals and whatnot. And he said, they'll see all four of them, and they'll be laying on that one. Don't go back after it. And just leave man, you get another. He said, they need the exercise. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a, what I remembered about how I met Pat, because yeah. after that, we just connected. When he oh. come back to the shop, he goes, did you get him? I said, did I shoot at him? <laughs> so, <laughs> and we became friends, you know. But I don't know how many hours I have spent in that shop watching that man with his craft watching him do his stuff just blow me away literally just take a dang old quail skin and just give it life again it's just it was it was fascinating to me i always wanted to be able to do it mm -hmm. i don't have the talent and so i got to just kind of live through him and watching him do it you know yeah you know how it's done now oh i know how it's done but get me to do it you got two chances that happening <laughs> slim and none no slim went fishing you know? <laughs> i had a buddy that would watch me do it too and he said i think you could do one of them blindfolded and i said after eight thousand i ought to be <laughs> and just knock them out what do you mount? 20 a day sometimes no, my best day was 13. my 13. best day with the skinner was 19. Mm. Yeah. that's a lot of quail mountain 
Yeah, oh, I, just, I couldn't old. imagine. I'd know. go to sleep at night, seeing myself pull the eyelid back and place a little piece of cotton in the cheek of the quail, you know, puff that cheek up just right. At that point, I knew I needed to quit and get away from them. It was monotonizing me. As I got to know an old Charlie, I remember I love to tell that story about him too. He was in there and he was working on a, a snow goose. It was Eagle Head. Remember, it had, you know, he had that thing degreased. No, that was the Greater Canadian. Was it the Canadian? Yeah, that Greater Canadian. It was a pin raised Greater Canadian. I was mounting from a, you know, Boston. But he, down he had his hand in the body and he was taking air and blowing that cornmeal out of the feathers and everything. And I, that damn thing ripped. Well, My then, hand came through the whole goose skin. Oh. But them taxidermists, a couple of them hands out there went to hero on him and stuff. Man, he slammed that door. He tore it in pieces Five and threw pieces. it out. And, <laughs> and man, I said, it's time me to get the hell out of here. And he slammed that door. As I was leaving that shop, I could hear him beating on stuff like a hatchet or a hammer or something. <laughs> I said, hell, I'm getting out of here. And I come back that afternoon and I, I seen that taxidermist over and I was kind of like, is it safe? You know, cause man was mad, you know, and I walked around that corner looking there's that dad gum goose, just perfect. He'd sewed that thing back together, mounted the damn thing. Yeah. It was perfect. That just blew me away. You know, <laughs> five pieces. You put it back together. Yeah. See, he didn't see the whole show, but I, I drop kicked it, punched it into two large pieces, and I picked up the front half, yanked the head and neck apart, threw that across the room, and ripped one more piece and left. Well, I went and burned a good joint and got calmed down, came back, sewed it all back together, you know, mounted it up. You couldn't tell it had ever happened. Oh, no, it was perfect. That just and that's when them, you know, helpers there, they shut up. They oh, said, yeah. I'm going to make fun of him again. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> But I mean, you brought that whole bird business to them, really. I mean, oh, yeah. You. yeah, they would have never even got into it if I hadn't went down there. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people that listen to the podcast are going to think you guys are sort of one and the same, but you have a lot of differences in like oh, the yeah. way that you hunt. Oh, Could you yeah. guys talk about that a little bit? What was different? Well, like I said, I was raised by those men down there. We were meat hunters, you know. I mean, believe me, we tried to kill the biggest one we could find. We did. But, you know, we had to get the meat out, you know, and that's why we were hunting. And, uh, and, of course, Charlie, purebred trophy hunter. And, boy, I, once he started banging up that whitetail heroin, he was hooked, man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he was out there getting them, you know. And, uh, like I said, back in those days, you know, you just didn't – you kept what you thought to yourself, you know. And he knew I. that's how come I couldn't go with me. He had took me any damn time, you know. But I just I couldn't do it, not with my the family and stuff the way, you know, they didn't want me doing that. So I just kept doing what I was doing, mostly, you know, road hunting with those old men. But then I, I jumped my places, you know. I got a secret place that I never hardly told him. I can't remember if I've ever told Charlie about the bottle of Arthur. But uh, it belonged to the Canales family. And Charlie Hornsby was the boss over all of it then. And him and my stepdaddy were double cousins. And there was, it was 20,000 acres down there. It's in between Fowl and, and uh, Hebronville and then south. Well, they say, oh, you can go out there hunting anytime you want to. Well, the cool thing about that, <laughs> the southern border, that's W.W. Jones. And if Wayne had his buddy with him in a bottle, well, they go sit underneath the mesquite tree and drink, and I'd hop that dang fence and <laughs> rattle me one up, you know. But I never, like I said, I'd never jump the fence in my life with the intention to spend the night. He'd <laughs> stay a month, <laughs> you know. I mean, I'd go in, come out, you know. That's just the way we did it, you know. But I bone the meat out carried out or 
Yeah. So I've, I've killed them in that Jones close enough. I could drag them. Maybe I had to drag them, you know, quarter mile, half mile, something, you know, and, and that back end of that part of the Jones is just so secluded. I mean, I was, you're probably 20 some miles from any pavement and I'm going in the backside of that ranch. They weren't even looking at it, you know? Yeah. And I enjoyed that. Where did the desire to, to spend the night come from? Because this is, this is a much different style. I mean, obviously you're going for the biggest buck that you said you can't, you could get, but where's the obsession to go and say, I'm going to spend the night in here. Well, <clears throat> for one thing, the one day hunt is the toughest hunt of all. If you're going to go deep, if you're hunting in excess of seven or eight miles deep, you know, you, you travel half the night before to get back there. Then you hunt all day and then you got to walk all the way out from 10 or 12 miles deep, that's the toughest hunt you can go on, a one-day hunt. So I said, I'm going to go in there and hunt that deep, spend the night, get some rest, hunt again, and then come out. I started doing two- and three-day hunts. They were a champ. Plus, when they were aware of a shot and you knew they'd be laying for you, leave them waiting. Mm -hmm. They staked the road out maybe that night, maybe another night. But about three nights later, they'd give it up. they said say, he's already come out somewhere. He ain't still here. I've had them fly helicopters all day the last day of a, a two-day hunt. And they thought I was gone because they had combed it so well with helicopters and it was a limited amount of brush. They thought I was gone. I walked out of there like I owned the place. The road was slicker than pavement where they drug all them helicopter trailers in and out of there and on double-wide tandem axle trailers and carrying all that load on it. And I just walk out of there laughing. I mean, I knew they would give it up. They thought, there ain't no way he's here now, not after this. Well, I was still there. I was bed up under a brush pile all day. They just didn't see me. And that, that you know, that ranch he's hunting there, that's 440,000 acres. Well, I mm -hmm. popped those shots the first day. And, I mean, see? it's, and he hunted plumbed to the dang sand dunes in the back of it, you know. I mean, didn't you, Charlie? Oh, yeah. And, I, man, it just, man couldn't. You couldn't go in there and do that in a day and come out, you know. He just kept going deeper and deeper, and he'd come back. He'd be telling me about that. i go, man, you're in heaven there, aren't you? Because <laughs> that's just pristine wilderness in those days, you know. Yeah. It'll make you cry if you saw it today. I hope Charlie never gets to go out there on that Kennedy ever. Well, that's two years ago up and down the road, and I could look out there and six, seven, eight miles deep to as far as you could see was the wind generator props. It's destroyed. My nephew goes out there a lot. He runs a crane company. And he said it just makes That's what the Democrats have done One to One <laughs> right after another after another, just as far as you can see. You know, the same thing hurt me so bad in my soul, man, is that Sweetwater country. You know, the cap rock, where you first hit that cap rock, when they start putting those wind generators up on that cap rock and break that beautiful scenery, it just made me sick. Yeah. You know. That was a pretty place out there. I mean, you just describe just what they've done to Texas. Everywhere yeah, you yeah. go in this state, the wind generators just, you know, destroyed the appearance. Hey, the I was in the panhandle during that freeze in 21. There wasn't any of them running. Oh, I know it. They froze. <laughs> Isn't something. that funny? Yeah, oh, yeah. Boy, I looked damn good on paper. It just didn't work. Kind of like communism. You know? Right. <laughs> They're doing them in Oklahoma too, all in the western part of the state. I mean, and I, I've I've heard when they do them, they just when they're done with them, they just leave them. They're just there. Dinosaurs. It's it's hard to believe too how you know those blades they don't last long. My nephew says they've changed every ever uh, two two years. You got to change those blades. They're beautiful when one catches on fire and you get to watch it burn to the ground. That's beautiful. <laughs> but yeah, he had a great idea. He said, 
they, there's places they've got them stacked. There's literally thousands and thousands of those big old blades. Mm -hmm. Man, just bore a couple holes through them, run a chain through them, put them on a barge, and take them off about 10 miles and make your reef out of them. Just dump them in the dang coast. <laughs> It'd be a perfect yeah. structure for to build a reef. Maybe they'll do that someday. Boy. Mm -hmm. Man, that's all they're good for. What you think about it, they get those things with our tax dollars, and it don't cost that landowner much, but he's going to get benefit off of it. You know, he's going to get paid off that. Well, you look at the Kennedy, you know, what 80% of it belongs to Catholic Church. And, and that money they get off that, it's not taxable either, you know. Right. You know, so they, they got pretty well off on that, on that Kennedy. Yeah, that's true. You guys said something interesting that I, I think a lot of people, uh, it's, it's not very pertinent today. You don't hear it very often is, uh, and you talked about it a little bit more in our podcast of, you just didn't tell a man what to do. Everybody today has an opinion and they'll tell you about it on all about on social media. What, how is it different when you guys grew up in the, you know, the hunting? You just didn't do that. You did not walk up to another man and offer your opinion without him asking for it. I mean, get violent quick. A guy just hit you for it, you know? As long as I've known this man for 45, 46 years now, I don't think Charlie's asked my opinion twice in a whole damn life, you know, and we're best of friends, you know. Don't feel so special. I don't ask anybody their opinion about <laughs> <laughs> But you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. just it's just the way that we grew up and stuff. It was it was different back then. And uh, you know, I, hell all I told every all those guys that I hunted with, of course, Wayne and my stepdad and everything and I'd give him blow by blows of his trips going in there. Man, look, he did this. Oh, dang. Like I said, none of us have even ever thought of that. Never even, it never even entered our mind, you know, to go out there and stay like he did. That's right. You're the first one ever did I know of. Well, there could have been others I just didn't know about. But, you know, in my latter years, I found countless camps, signs that once the Kennedy was leased out in 84, and Houston and San Antonio began to hear more about it, become aware of it. A lot of outlaw walk-in hunters began to attack it from the perimeter. Now, they didn't know anything about the bay and stuff. I didn't have boat access, but they'd go in from the roadside park area, nearby area, and they'd penetrate three, four, five miles. And I found trashed areas. And I'm going to be honest with you about it. it. It disturbed me. I thought the whole time I've hunted in here, I've never trashed this place. And I was offended. And I said, I ought to go join law enforcement and become the chain gang shotgun man over the cleanup crew. Everybody caught poaching in there would have to go under my control. Clean it up, boys. Make it shine. <laughs> I would put trash bags in the hands of every one of them and a poker to stick stuff with and pick it up with. But it, you wouldn't believe the trash. You know, it's clearly outlaw hunters and partying, party animals too, whiskey bottles, you know, all kinds of, you know, signs of what they were. It was no, it wasn't a bunch of illegals. You see that, you see the gallon water jugs they've carried to get them around the border patrol checkpoint stuff, but you know, trash the place. It disgusted me. I thought if I ever do want to do something good with my life, that's what I'll do. I'll put in to be the chain gang guy, hold shotgun on, make them clean it up. You get caught in there, all right, it's a year on hard duty out there in the ranch picking up the mess. You know, because probably some of them had left it. <laughs> you yeah. know, I'd have the right guy in some cases. But yeah, I guess really you look at the big picture of it, like say Uncle Zenus, you know, he started about 1910. I bet he didn't trash the place. Well, no, he? he didn't, but he know you didn't know he went in there, went out. But you know, in those days, I mean, 
if they caught you enough, they killed you. That's what Mike Fane hit game one said at my rest. First thing they said when the smoke cleared and they had me stood back up, he said, well, he don't litter. You got to admire men for that. Or he said, you got to respect the men for that. He'd been on my trail 17 miles for three days, and he did not find one piece of toilet paper where I wiped my ass, you know. <laughs> I mean, he knew I didn't litter the joint, you know, and fresh sign like that is, you know, one thing you guard against. You don't want to leave a sign of and fre- the tra- trail being fresh is what they're looking for. They showed me that when they went with me on a fishing trip once. They look at old sign at a glance. They see some fresh sign. That's what they get on and track. See, they're trained to do that. And, you know, it's certainly any fresh sign. I was on a hunt one time with my buddy Dennis Music. He goes, we got company. We'd split up, met back in the corner of the fence line one night. And he said, we got company. And I said, we do. And he goes, yeah. He said, I found a fresh set of tracks, a turd, and a piece of fresh toilet paper on it. <laughs> I said, it wasn't mine. <laughs> but I guess what I was going to say was, you know, like I said, you started off then. They caught you, they killed And then there were some incidents. And, yeah, it made people found out about it and stuff. Well, they knew that more than I ever oh, knew in my time. Oh, yeah. But, but it went from there to by the time I come around there, man, it was just freaking game, buddy. I'm telling you, it was less than a $100 fine. If they didn't get you in the ranch, it, it wasn't going to break $100. Well, you couldn't get a deer lease for that. There's no way. And if you did pay that little for a deer lease, I guarantee you they'd run goats through there. There weren't no deer in it. You know, especially everything used to be west of 281. There just wasn't anything around Foul and Furious in Premont and that area there. The deer were all shot out. And I tell you now, those places, places hurting, people moving out, it's growing up. Right there at Grandpa Horns, I never seen a deer there in my life. And they killed 160 class there last year. Wow. You know, they're just coming back, you know. How can you have the juxtaposition of so much respect for the wild place? and but then so much disregard for the people that owned it can you kind of talk about that because you're talking about the place like you have it's just this amazing wild expansion <laughs> that you uh, well the kennedy is is separate yeah and and i didn't kill but a handful of deer on a kennedy in my life just looking at it like they're greedy rich but, landowners they but, got more than they need and they're just scarfing up all that land keeping everybody off of it well, it's not fair well, it's in yeah. a history of my book too because i mean it you know, that, I don't know how they got the land, and it's not right. It, and everybody knows down there. The old-timers still know. I get messaged now all the time. I had a guy the other day say, yeah, I'm a Dale Goddard, and they stole my land, you mm. know, my grandfather's land or my great-grandfather's land. What do you mean by that? How do they, how do they steal it? Can you talk about that oh, a little yeah. bit? Yeah, put a bullet in the back of your head and build <laughs> the fence a little bit bigger. They literally, the one of the stories that they used to tell me, that they'd come to a guy maybe had, you know, a thousand acres. And they said, hey, we're going to give you $15 an acre for that. Well, that was huge money back then, you know. Well, hey, yeah, I'll sell it, you know. It's just me now, everybody's dead, you know. Sign the contract, give him the money, see you later. They come back that night, they'd shoot him, kill him, build the the fence a little bit bigger, tear the damn thing up, and then go knock on the next door neighbor's door. Well, pretty soon people just started running because they knew they were dead. And that's how they took a lot of it. And like I said, history's not going to tell you that. Those people down there will tell you that. I mean, they. It, I, I hear it all the time, feedback from, you know, the book and posts and stuff like that. I met a man at the hospital there in Somerville County, Glen Rose. His whole family was 
his, their land, their ranch was taken away from them. It's still under litigation. His name is Joe Davila. His family is still trying to take it to court and get back the land that the King Ranch took from them. He said, we had a lot of land down there. He couldn't believe my book. And he goes, man, let me tell you what happened to us down there. And, you know, he explained it. And it's still in, in court over. But, and the thing is, and we, we pick on the King Ranch because we hunted south of the Nueces River, now Wild Horse Desert. Why do you, you go across that river and get on north side, Sam Trisha, when he's talking about all those big ranches up there, you know, Welder and all that stuff, the O'Connor. Hell, they got it the same way. They took it. You know, the thing was, in that period of time, before 1874, before they sent Leander McNally across the, the river as a Texas Ranger, there was no damn law. There wasn't no law. There was bandits. There was outlaws. There was, you know, everything like that. And those Spanish people that had the land, land grant people, they were isolated as hell. Think about it, 1821. Well, Spain lost Mexico. And these people have been there for a couple of generations going, oh, shit, who's the boss now? You know, they had nobody to turn to. You know, nothing. It was clean picking, easy. Mm -hmm. That's how come they end up got it all. You know, there was nobody there to help. And hell, when they sent the Texas Rangers across, they were working for the damn King Ranch. There wasn't nobody else there. Henrietta King threw a party for him when they got their cattle back. I wrote the story in a book. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you, Charlie, you talk a lot about in, in a lot of your podcasts about the, the power of these places and their ability to politic and, and get your job if they don't want you around oh, there yeah. or, or that sort of thing. You bet they could. Had a lot of influence. Had a lot of influence. But that's what's changed so much now. That was their fear factor. So they that controlled the game, the outlaw hunter better. By saying, we catch you, you're going to lose your job, too. They threaten you with it. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to lose it at all. You're going you're gonna to lose everything. <clears throat> and that fear factor is what they you could count on because you know, the married men with kids, they didn't want to lose their job over a little bit of hunting. And so that was more effective than trying to catch them. See, it was better than being a game warden. But ever Security. since that ranch was established, there was a leader. You know, first it was Captain King. You know, then when he died, you know, in uh, uh, 1885 at the Minger Hotel, then Robert Justice Clayburg took over. And that's how the Clayburg clan started. But there was always a figure over that ranch. After Robert Justice, well, then was Mr. Bob. Well, Mr. Bob probably did more building that ranch up because <clears throat> he was flying here and there and buying land. That's bought that land in Florida, Australia, South America. They got land all over. And now that business is the biggest business they got, you know, growing that turf grass. They make more off that than yeah, they, they do cattle. They, they're responsible for destroying quail in North Texas and no telling where else, bringing in the yeah, fire, fire ants. ants. <laughs> fire ants coming in on that side grass. It's like that quail in Dallas, Fort Worth. When I was a kid, you could shoot 20 in one shot in cubbies that were so thick during dove season, they'd wad up a hundred and something in a, in a place. I've done it. And you don't even see a quail. You don't hear a quail in South Arlington anymore. They were all over it. But when, when the corporation took over, and I mean, it, it's it's a corporation now. I mean, like I told you, I said that running W stands for Wall Street. They were going to get, they didn't want a top figure, somebody to dislike. Like the, for uh, my whole life, we always had somebody to hate. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I, I hated Bobby Shelton. Mm -hmm. I never even laid eyes on the man, but I, I hated that guy. And uh, One was never and then they, What was it? 1998 is when they, they sent the last one, T.O. Clayburg, they sent him to the house, you know, 
Now he gets his check and all that stuff, but he ain't got nothing to do with running that business anymore. Bobby Shelton was a big hunter. And he would show up next. He lived next door to the professor that took me to Kingsville in the first place. Hmm. And he would pull up every evening during deer season with mule deer looking racks on these bucks in the bed of his truck. Alan said he always had way over the limit. I mean, he just shot the piss out of them big deer. Took friends, let them kill them. He loved hunting, you know. And it was he the, was the renegade of the ownership of the King Ranch. Well, it was he in married the, one of those Claybird daughters. Yeah, it was in the 70s. You know, there was those those two guys. It was Bobby Shelton and then B. Johnson. And they were half-brothers. And that Claybird girl, she... The first one was B, and I understand he was a cowboy, and, and he didn't, he got killed shortly after that baby was born. And then she remarried a doctor from Corpus, a Shelton, and that's where Bobby Shelton come from. So they were raised kind of together, but without parents. And that was Mr. Bob, you know, he had to look over that, but hell, he was flying all over the world buying stuff, fixing up and stuff. And those kids were born with money you know i mean they, if there's checks in the checkbook they still got to have money you know i mean it, there's no <laughs> limit to that damn stuff yeah and then sound like they, my ex-wife <laughs> <laughs> but then they when they uh you know when they went total control of corporate they 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 sent them both you're gone they paid them off i heard they got 250 million a piece and they didn't make it they didn't make it 10 years they're both dead drank themselves death lost everything they had that place up in Bozeman, Montana, that my my brother-in-law's uh, dad used to you know, go up there every year. That's 175,000 acres right there. A banana belt of Bozeman, beautiful, you know. And hell, that, uh, who is it now? Yeah, uh, what's his name? Ted Turner. He owns it now. At one time, we still married Barbara Streisand, and Barbara Streisand was out there and stuff, too. Hmm. But they lost that land. It was a beautiful place, man. I never saw it, but the boys did. They tell me all about it, pictures and stuff, you know, my, my nephews. But that was sad. That's just what happened, you know. Sounds like something out of Yellowstone, the new TV show that's all the race. It, you know, really, I'd, I'd call the King Ranch of Yellowstone, South Texas. No doubt. Yeah. There ain't no doubt about it. Someone should do a movie about the King Ranch and all the, you know, hierarchy and the corruption. I mean, it'd blow Dallas with JR out of the water. What's gone on down there? And I tell you what, in that country back down there 50 years ago, you think Rip was tough? He's an actor. I knew a dozen men like that to square off with him in a heartbeat. Really? Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> Them people were rough, buddy. You know, I mean, I was bad when I was young. You know, I mean, I had a buddy I ran with. We go in. If we couldn't find a girl or fight to get in, let him cock. We was <laughs> out in the park lot fighting each other. <laughs> and when you start doing that, you got screwed loose. You know what I mean? Yeah. I said, well, I got to stop doing this damn stuff. They should have took up walking and hunting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd probably be a lot better off if I walked and hunting with Charlie, you know? Gosh dang. Just having fun with it. And you get know? back in tune with nature, so you would have been so violent. <laughs> But that's what people seem to like the most about that. Well, they like the old stories, you know, about the old timers. And, uh, but the, the, the history is the first time it's kind of been laid out there, you know, unabridged, you know. It's just like I said it would be. And I was impressed. I didn't know he knew as much historical accounts as he mm -hmm. did. And when I saw it rolling off his tongue on y'all's other podcast, I was like, you got me. You backed me up and then you blew me away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got some reason I numbers and stuff. I remember things, you know. It's, 
like let's say King died April 14th, 1885. <laughs> well, then Kennedy died March 14th, 1895, 10 years later. I, just, I don't know those things. They just stick in my head. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, I, but I enjoy that too. You, you're supposed to learn something from history, you know, and not but, change it. <laughs> right. You asked earlier how we bonded. We bonded with some road trips together, huh? And you know, we started, he got me, he corrupted me back into road hunting. And it's the most dangerous form of outlaw hunting. But I was doing some of my own on the Antelope West Texas. So we go up there on this West Texas Antelope hunt. That year, uh, I guided a total of 14 bucks to their doom. And him and his buddy, Greg Gannon, was one of the other guys that went with us. And we went up there and bratted three goats, you know. And I'll tell you what, we, we've had close calls out there. But that country's so big, it's hard to, you know, right. stop an outlaw hunter on the road out there. It's just too vast, you know. <laughs> they can't watch it all. That's why in that book that, you know, Charlie's uh, – Foot race with the antelope. That's our greatest story, both. Well, he, 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 you know, he told me when, when he wrote, he said, well, nobody believes I ran that damn antelope down. And I'm going, wow, well, the hell do you think they got it to the fence? You know? Yeah. And and it just bigger than Dallas, the man did it. You know, I mean, we yeah. sat there and looked at that buck. He was out there four and a half, five. He we was were, 400 plus. And I told Pat, I said, hold four feet for the wind. It's we're shooting 25 or six. I think Greg had that thing three inches high to hundred. Well, we had one of those dialoscopes. Okay, so dial the did. distance. But I in. told him, I said, hold four feet out in front of his chest because the wind was blowing to his butt, you know. And I said, you'll ask shoot him if you don't. That's I know what I'm done. He didn't listen to me. He held about a foot out in front of his neck, blew over and broke a leg. He was laying down when he shot him. And of course, he just rolled over and kicked and flopped. And he was hooraying and hurrahing. And I said, He ain't dead. You hit him in the ass. I can tell. And he tried to get up a little. And he ain't going nowhere. Just leave him alone. Don't shoot again. Let's get out of here. So we went cruising and let it get dark. Let him just lay back down. Nobody noticed him laying out there live. That was perfect cover till dark. Well, we dropped you off. It was it, dark. It, yeah, it was just out. about no, getting no, dark. No, it was dark. Well, hell, I, I could still I got, see you with no shirt on, yeah, your skin for, glistening yeah, out there, the, running out the, there. The moonlight. But I got out there where I could see him about 50 yards from him, and he got up on me. I just broke instant reflex, you know, and started heading outward to cut him out. I knew I was going to need some more lead to get him turned. I just started running along with him and then started head, hedging him back. And I got him turned. And I'd leave him alone, let him move as long as he's moving the direction I wanted to move in. Then he'd lay down. I said, okay. I'm going to get him a little close to the fence. Might as well play it for our benefit, you know. So I'd get him up and move him again. And I'd turn him again. I think I moved him four times to get him 30 yards from the fence. I said, that's perfect. When he laid down then, I had him tuckered. I had him bleeding good again. And he laid down 30 yards from the fence. I said, now I'm going to back off and leave him alone. I'd go about 300 yards, I think, to head off that in the truck. The signal was he was going to be thumping the top of the cab as they were driving back. As soon as I heard that start, I got over the fence and started out in front of him to flag him down early, stop him, tell him it was still alive, and I'd shoot him again. And boy, he eat my ass out. Don't ever get out in front of the truck like that. It could have been someone not with that signal. Shut up and get ready. Let me tell you what's going on. I said, the buck's still alive. You're going to have to finish him off. He goes, I don't believe that. I said, he's still alive. Now get ready to shoot him. I've got him pushed up 30 yards from the fence. He goes, oh, bullshit, you didn't move it in. I said, I sure did. I get up there and shoot him and finish him off. And he goes, I just don't believe a word of that. And he's fighting me all the way to tooth and nail. We get right to him. And I said, stop right now. You're right on him. Turn the headlights. And he cut the headlights. He goes, well, son of a bitch, there he is. <laughs> he grabbed that 25-hour I see the thing was, Greg and I were oblivious of what was actually happening. 
I thought the damn antelope was dead. And when he come back up that truck, he's all excited. He said, I got him right on the fence. And where's this son of a bitch? <laughs> Put him in a damn truck. Let's get out of here. You know? Yeah. No, he's still alive. Yeah. What? You know? <laughs> we got him. <laughs> that was that was a trip. Yeah, that trip, I didn't shoot one. Greg had shot a good one, too. And so here we leave out, you know, two illegal gutted antelope. And he reminded me, and it's in his account. I forgot. We get to a gas station around. Uh, oh, what was that God. little town back this side? Oh, of that Marfa? was Del Rio. That now, was Del Rio on the other side where we filled there's up. There's a small town out there. You used to see a big mule deer in the ditch out there all the time. I can't recall the name of the town, but we pull in and get gas. And blood and blood and water from the ice we shoved in their gut cavity is running out on the ground in this van full of nuns from some mission out there. Pull up beside the okay, truck. Okay, it's three o'clock in the morning. And all this blood is running out of the back. And he goes, Get up and get in. We got to get out of here. That, and them nuns are looking at that blood. They think we got a murder victim in the back seat. Charlie, he wants something to eat, drink, too. And I said, well, put the damn shirt on, you know. And he put it, finally put a shirt on. And we went in that place. And I didn't really know what was going on. Greg was pumping the gas. Yeah, Greg's one saw And the then right that now. puddle. And then them nuns pulled up. Hey, boy, he's over there with his foot trying to smear <laughs> that stuff everywhere, you know. And just scared as hell, you know. And, when I come out there, he's pointing at that stuff. And I said, yeah, I got excited. We need to get out of here. Hell, they could put a dog on us and trail us to damn Premont. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we had, we got away with it. It but was the, fun. The nail guy story is probably crazier than that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell what happened because I remember. Pat's got a little memory loss. I <laughs> <laughs> well, we go down 77 South the night before he'd shot a cow nail guy with a 7 millimeter Express that he just got just bought it signed it in he goes i'm gonna go test it out on a nail guy so we see a cow he goes good it's meat bull i mean meat cow so he shoots her i go out there gutter cut her in half drag both pieces to the fence and he's back in 25 minutes i believe he's a little early he said i'll be there in 30 max get ready get her to the fence cut her in two pieces and get her to the fence i got her up there. i'm still i think i'm still dragging the last piece to the fence away it's three four 30 40 yards well i get her there and he's on the scene and we load her so the next day we go after a bull we go down and we're approaching the Rudolph Gate on King Ranch. And on the left is a round Oakmont, 100-yard circle, but big native, you know, trees in it. And there's a hollow in the middle of it, a grassy hollow. And right in the middle of that hollow was a big bull nail guy and a cow. And he goes, I don't know if I'll shoot him here or not. I said, well, let's go on by and check it out. So we go by and here's the Rudolph Gate in less than a mile, probably 900 yards. And we go past that gate. It's armed. It's got a gate guard. His truck's sitting there. We go past it. We go down about another half a mile. And Pat just stomps the brakes on a brake in the traffic and does a U-turn. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to kill him. And we get straightened out and start going north to kill him. And this truck is in our lane flashing his headlights at us. And, you know, it's like 4.30 in the evening or so, 5 maybe. And we're like, what the hell's this? And all of a sudden, he gets out of the way, and when he gets out of the way and goes back into the head-on lane, here's an unmanned truck coming right at us. We barely had room to miss him on the shoulder and let him by. He come right through our lane, and he was come off a tow bar. They haul vehicles to Mexico all the time down there, and the tow bar had come unhitched, and here this darn unmanned truck's coming right at us. Oh my God! Oh and no, that's what he was warning us about. Dead at me. You know so I mean? I'm locked here, yeah. and I'm going. What the hell am I going to do? Yeah. You know. So then, yes, we, but that car that pulled it. 
when it, I caught it, you could see the sparks from that tow bar. Yeah, dragging. dragging. I said, somebody's got loose, you know? So anyway, we, we go past the, <laughs> he, he went over into the fence and balled up, big crash and wreck. You know, turn on his side and all balled up in the fence, big loud noise, I'm sure. The gate guard heard it. It wasn't six, seven, eight hundred yards south of him. Well, he comes running out, looks, sees the wreck. He thinks it's probably people injured and all. So he jumps in his truck and takes off down there. And Pat says, I'm killing the hell out of him now. We pull up there, boy. He stops, turns around, put it on his side, pow, breaks his neck, drops that big bastard. He wasn't 80 yards off the fence, takes off. We go back to town. Well, we get with Fred up Hornsby, his uncle Fred, and his old truck just after dark, go down there to gut him and get him cut up and drug up and get the whole animal. And we did. I believe it was in October. And uh, so we had a plan. Once we load him, hell, the guts looked like a 300-pound fat man laying there on the <laughs> ground, you know, when we gutted him. And then we cut him in three pieces right behind the front shoulders and then again in front of the hams. And we drug him three pieces up. And it was beautiful because there was real high grass in the bar ditch. We got the pieces over the fence and into the bar ditch in that high grass real close to the truck, real close to the road. And then here comes Fred. Well, we load that son bitch in that old truck of his and, we go all the way to Raymondville. We did U turn lights out, went Raymondville, cut across to 281, come back up to Foul Furious, and we pull up in the Border Patrol checkpoint. And I mean, bright lights, you know, in front of God and everybody. And Border Patrolman comes out there, hey, y'all doing? Good. He turns around, and kind of shocked him when he saw that <laughs> nail guy in three pieces in the bed of the truck, put his flashlight on it, and he goes, Is that the uh, nail guy? Pat's sitting in that passenger side, and he goes, Yep. He goes, well, why is he cutting three pieces? And he goes, you ever try to load one of them things whole? You can't do it. <laughs> he goes, I'll have a nice evening. <laughs> but that's what we did, see, because we, Charlie and I had been to that dang border check twice on 77. Well, then here we come. We, we went back. Yeah, to we weren't going to use it again loaded. It, that so. was it. You know, we said, Fred's man, you know, he was good. As good as it was, drive yeah. wheel man. He said, let's take a long way around, come up 281. That was yeah. a smart decision. But Charlie, <laughs> and we were both covered in blood in that damn truck. Was I shot him. No guy, you know. I shot him down there with another guy and just caped the head and then put the head by the battery under the hood in his Chevy truck just before we got to the Border Patrol checkpoint and then came through it. And when we got to town, there was blood all down the fender well where that cape slapped against it, loading it over into the, under the hood. I mean, it's crazy all the I mean, shit we got away with that we should have been caught on, you know. Is, are you guys never nervous about, like, having all these legal animals in your truck? Like, you talk about the antelope driving across Texas, the nil guy. I I could have one crappie over my limit, and I'd be about to piss my <laughs> pants, you know. I mean, you guys are – it just seems like you got some stones. Well, I mean, part of the fun. Yeah, that it, that's, it is. That's exactly right. That's it's part of the excitement. be breaking the law. You know, it, that's mm -hmm. the adrenaline rush, you know. But I, you know, I said when just jumping and doing what I was doing with them old men or, or even walking in by myself, that even when I was on foot, I didn't think they had a chance catching me. No. I really didn't because, hell, I was young and I was fast and I could jump like a gazelle. And I, you know, I was about half mean. Somebody get on me on foot, I'll come up around behind them, knock them <laughs> over the head and leave them out there. You know, I just ain't going to do it. You know, I know a guy that's being chased by all them illegals over in the Robert East. He turned around and threw a big head on that guy chasing him, trying to tackle him. Of course, the guy had a pistol, too, yelling, stop, stop. Well, he wasn't going to stop. 
he turned around when he got right close to him, had this big deer head he just killed, caked up, and he slammed him with it. God. And this kid was strong, and he just decked that the guy chasing him. That ended that. You know, he couldn't hang then. He whacked him good with it. <laughs> big old 15-point deer head. <laughs> Gosh, dang. What's the what's the thrill of of having an animal in the back of your truck and trying to get away? Just the, the fear of getting caught? Is that what it is? It could happen? I mean be honest with you christian i don't I, that that I'm, i don't know what fear is <laughs> i ain't never been afraid of nothing in my life i just don't it's, it's it was excitement and you know when, you, when it gets down greedy it's man it's just that much more fun you know and, and pulling one out right in front of their nose you know like we did that bull i mean that, that was a, a message you that know that's as brassy as you can get <laughs> how close were you to where the wreck had happened well when he shot him, we were probably pushing 1,400 yards. Halfway to the wreck was the guard shack. So we, we shot him about 500. I could take you and show you or look at a map and show you. Probably went 500 yards to the guard shack. But when he jumped in his truck and took off down there, before he got there, we had the bull dead. Yeah. See? He was in his truck, couldn't hear the shot, and we knew that. So we were like, he can't hear the shots while he's driving down. No, it was just a perfect before setup. He gets out of the you know, up. you knew. Yeah, we got this now. You know, it was him down anyway. I mean, talk about a stroke of luck on a runaway truck. Yeah, that's pretty what it was. But I tell you what, this old boy, you, I about pinched that seat from my rear end. I looked up in that dead dumb truck, and there was nobody in it. I mean, just barreling at me. I, God dang if that guy hadn't warned us flashing his lights, you know, he yeah. knew it'd come loose. He'd yeah. tell he lost his load. He just come over flashing at us because he knew it was going to hit us. Mm -hmm. We could have been head on and killed if he hadn't have done what he oh, did. Oh, yeah. You know, because you turning around to go kill the bull. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> Gosh dang. I'm killing well, him. I had it. I'd hunted one one night with Fred and him. And then when I bought that seven millimeter or eight, no we, express, seven, seven millimeter Remington Express, that's right. And uh, we always hunted with Fred's rifle at two forty three, a sweet. And that night we lit that damn bull up. Yeah, with radar. Yeah, you had the two forty three radar he was then, right there looking at me, and he wouldn't move his head. So, move your damn head, move your damn head. You know, where I could hit him back here with that two forty three. I find some piss on him, and I shot him right between eyes, and that sucker. His legs buckled and he started going down. And about halfway there, he just caught himself. Yeah. Shook his head like that and turned around and just took off. And yeah, we watched him till the light couldn't see him anymore running. That I didn't grain do nothing bullet. to give him a damn headache. Yeah, that hundred grain <laughs> bullet just, you know, smeared right Probably off Probably he parted his scalp. Laid him open to But that made me mad. And I mean, the next morning, I mean, I was living. I got up and I went to Texas Gun Shop on Padre Island Drive. Cold Creek, That's Texas. what caused you to buy the 7 Express. Yeah, I, I went in there and I said, you know, I, I was going to buy a 7 Mag or something like that. But my brother-in-law, he shot the 280 for years. I mean, early 60s. And like I said in the book, what that what killed that gun was the 270 Winchester and Jack O'Connor. He was all over the world shooting stuff with the 270. You know, it's just a skosh difference, you know, mm -hmm. but a little bit. But those hand loaders knew that that was a hell of a good round. Yeah. And, uh, if you and put a radar right. right in the black of the nose. Uh, oh, yeah. Went down. Oh, yeah, he would have. I, I shouldn't have shot him here. Hey, Charlie showed me a skull one day afterward. He said, look at this. I ain't kidding. That damn skull's that thick right there. Sparks come off the saw blade on a meat saw, cutting <laughs> the skull for a nail. I showed him out. That crown is just like marble. 
you, you know, the top, the, the plate, and then there's a bone back in the ear area that's just solid marble. And sparks just fly off the blade when you're trimming one of them skulls for a shoulder mount. I can't believe how tough a skull is. I've shot yeah. a deer in the head on accident with a bow. Mm -hmm. With a bow. I hit him in the head, and it didn't go in half of an inch. And mm -hmm. he just kind of looked like he got Mike Tyson's with a right hook or something. <laughs> and then he just ran off. Oh, yeah. And I was like, that was 300 feet per second to the to the head with a muzzy broadhead, and he yeah. just ran off. I shot one in the tear duct right here one time and just buried it. And it knocked him nearly out. But then he caught himself, stood there a minute, quivering his eyes, were squinting, quivering, and then he just recomposed himself, took off. Last thing I saw was that flag on Fletching going out through that brush. <laughs> Gosh, dang. <laughs> They're tough. They are. Those those two hunts right there, I guess, was uh, as good a fun we ever had together. I mean, they don't oh, get any was, more fun than that, really. It was just, it was just it was funnier just, than hell. We, was, oh, we, pulled, hell. we pulled it off right <laughs> under their nose, you know. <laughs> That's that's what made the game fun back when it was a game, and back then it was, you know. Like I said, when I quit, and he, he quit, and then he got married and everything. And what was it, ninety when you come back? Yeah. And uh, of course, hell, by then I was uh, I was in Augusta, Georgia, you know. And uh, but we always kept kept up with one another and everything. I remember we right before we moved back to Texas, you got a hold of me and said when you got caught ninety eight. That's right when I come back to Texas ninety eight. Just got homesick, you know. I had enough of chasing, you know, rainbows and big right. money and all that stuff. And, and the kids wanted to go to college in Texas, and, and I wanted to go to college. Yeah, I, I know it's true for him because he grew up down there. But when I go to South Texas, I'm at home. It's like I came back home. I can't describe it any other way. I'm more at home down there than in Fort Worth, and I grew up in Arlington. But I go down to South Texas, and you know, you feel the the myth and the, the legend of the King Rain, you feel it in the air, the salt air, you can smell it. And, you know, I just know I'm there. I'm at peace and I go, I'm home. I, I, I may retire down there someday. Mm. Do a lot of fishing. Like I said, I, my mama still lives there and she's going to be a hundred in October. Yeah. I'm breathing all that good fresh air coming in off the Gulf. Yeah. And I'm a blessed fella about that. There ain't no kidding. But yeah. She still lives there. She ain't going nowhere. She would cook us all them smothered dove meals every night of dove season. You know, she'd been there stewing up the ones we killed the day before, and we're out there picking about 90 or 100 more birds. We just shot double the limit. <laughs> oh, we used to have a ball shooting birds together. We, we were spanking them one evening, and a game warden car went by out there about 150 yards from and he hit the brakes and slowed. And right by the time he got to Pat's truck, he just put it back in gear and went on. And I thought, He's probably going somewhere. He's got a commitment to be somewhere. He's going to a hot spot. He won't be back. We'll just keep hammering him. <laughs> Hammer the shit out of him. They, they didn't watch that stuff real big back then, you know? And because dove hunting was, like I said, it was a social event. Yeah. I mean, it, a lot of times there'd be 40 trucks out in the field, and I bet you ain't 15 people shooting. The moment men stand around, drink a beer, Hanging out. fire. Put them a grill, like parilla, what they call it down there. Throw some meat on it, and it just visited. That's my best hunt I ever had. Mama was there. I, she's still living. She could tell you she because she'd done the counting. And back in those days, remember that little sawed-off double I used to shoot? Yeah, 20 it's, gauge. Yeah, it's a Rossi. And it just looked like an old stagecoach. Got hammers. 18 and a quarter-inch barrels. That much above being illegal. But it had chokes in it. You know, it had a improved cylinder modified. I wore two of them out, just literally. And my stepdaddy built new firing pins for them. But hell, I'd shoot 
two or three boxes every day. I mean, we shot every day, you know. Pat don't miss. And, you know, one guy asked him one time, hunt me, and he said, you ever miss one? He goes, I try not to. <laughs> <laughs> That's but, back when you could afford ammo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that day out there, and there, all the men were there, and Mama was there, and uh, I remember I brought five boxes of shells. And had my dog scooter went out there and i'd come i get a load of birds come back dump them off and mom was picking playing them and stuff you know and i said keep track of mom and i'd go again at the end of that day i walked back to that truck i had two <laughs> rounds in that shotgun I broke it open pulled them out so i shot 123 times right i killed 117 birds oh my god <laughs> <laughs> i said mom she says 117 you had to really be careful chewing them on them breasts that Pat shot because there was so much lead in it. You broke your teeth on it. Gosh, dang. But like I said, it was just, you know, we give you birds up and stuff like that all the time. You know, that's who I stayed the night with last night was my sister and my brother-in-law, uh, Billy. And I've got a story in there about the pit clean white wings. And well, that's who I was with. And we were down there on the river shooting them dang and the two wets had come across. <laughs> and they were picking them, you know. And so we give them $5. Buddy, I'm telling you, they picked them slick as a baby's butt, man. There wasn't even fuzz on them. And when we get pulled out, we had to ride them out. But he, he picked that last stuff up again. Whose is this? Whose is it? Well, old Billy claimed it. Improperly picked uh, migratory fowl. You got to leave a feathered wing. Really? Yeah. And my, Wayne, my dad, he was drunk. He come out of that yard car. Any dumb son of a bitch can tell the difference between a morning dove and a white wing by his feet. Get him in the car. Get him in the car. <laughs> in the jail. Oh, Wayne was mad. It cost us a hundred dollars or something like that. And Billy paid the fine. He's mm -hmm. a bigger man than I was. I was trying to, but I ruined that hunt. We was in that field, and it was a big old meadow and stall, tall stand of cottonwoods on all around us. Well, he got on one end, I got on the other. And he, he could see the birds coming that way. Hey, they're coming, Hunger. And I'd do the same for him. And man, we were just hammering and hammering, and all of a sudden it quit. And I said, well, I guess that's all of it. Hey, we'd kill quite a few birds, you know. And then it damn buzzed. He'd come floating over, you know. And he just hung there and hung there. And I said, that's the reason the damn birds ain't flying. And he was up probably 60, 70 yards. I just took the chuck and I just peppered his ass. I thought I was smart. That's the dumbest thing I ever did. Because the minute I hit that buzzard, he puked and shit right in the middle where we were hunting. And we all had to leave. Because that's some nasty stuff right there. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And Billy will probably, he'll remind me. That. He'll be listening to this thing when it comes up. And he'll say, I remember that. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> You guys, I know you you both kind of describe uh, that this point in time um, in your outlaw hunting careers as a, as a game. When did when did the game change? When did it become s serious? Same because year that thing on his shirt came out, nineteen eighty three. Well, it was building. It had already gone from a class C misdemeanor to a class A punishable by to up to two years in county jail, six months, you know, thirty days was being handed out. All right, it was no longer just a fine and probation. You were going to do 30 days under Class A. Well, I don't know why they didn't give me 30 days when I was caught. 
they should have, but we, you know, they said, if you'll quit, we're going to go light on you. Everybody have a good taste in the mouth. And, and then, you know, if you're serious about quitting, we'll do what we can and we'll let you back on the ranch anytime you want. They promised me to come visit when I wanted to see it because they knew I loved it. And they promised me that because they knew I would want to come back and see the ranch. Well, so they let me off with a deal. But the next year in 99, it became a felony. It was completely over then. I think they knew that was coming. And that kind of came into place because of a shootout. The, the Robert East had, you know, 60, 70 illegals with little cap gun Saturday night special 22s to make arrest with out tracking. They'd give them a sack lunch and dump them out all over that 90,000 acre ranch. And they'd pick up a set of tracks and, you know, get with one of their kingpins, you might call him with a radio and pull the heat over there, even on the track and not, not, not after a shot, but even go ahead and put them on your trail. And they themselves were paid a bonus if they could track down an outlaw and catch him. And they were busting them. They busted 80-something people the first year doing that, most of them out of Houston, San Antonio, and the 60-something the next year. But the shootout takes place when they corral five guys from Houston. And they fired on them because they wouldn't come out. And then when they did, they brought in the troops and just mowed the brush down over their head, and they put up a white flag. Well, when they came out after that shootout, it was trial was held in a federal court in San Antonio. That's their district jurisdiction and all firing on officers like that. Well, they hammered them guys. I, I don't know why there's not more publicity about it, but that's what got them enough ammunition and the operation, Bonato macho deal, my arrest. They combined all that and pushed it through. They got it lobbied through then to go to a felony. Then it was over. That's why I think the game wardens knew he's done. You know, he's got a prior. He's going to get time even on a prior second offense. Then it became a felony. They knew I was too smart to go back then. I wasn't going to get, you know, a felony to prison. It's over. It's all over in 99. 15 years after I quit, see. I mean, it literally in my day, up to 83, it was just, it's just a game. You know, I'm telling you, them boys enjoyed chasing us too. You yeah, know? that last nine years I was doing it though. No, that was. It was building. Oh, hell yeah, it know. was building. Well, for example, another deal happened. There was some guy working out on a ranch. They had a buck. He's in Texas, Trove Hunter Magazine. I think he made the cover. I know there's an inside article on it. Had 29 does in there. They were inseminating with his seed, you know. And he had 30 inches inside spread, a unicorn point in the middle of the skull, I believe, or coming off one base into the middle, about six-inch unicorn. And somebody got disgruntled down on the ranch, and disgruntled employees who they think did it. But he went in there and shot that buck and killed all 29 does in the trap with him. Oh, my gosh. He killed the bloodline. Well, that infuriated the game wardens in the ranch, and lots of pressure came from that. That was in the early Deep South Texas breeding programs, and that was a big stink. And then that old outlaw Ronnie Carroll got caught in the Robert East, and, and you know, it was a big stink about how he mocked them and ridiculed them, how much he had got away with, and, you know, he threw it in their face. He was winning the movie Grande occasionally, him and a Goose Mangus guy shooting them out of a helicopter. And, but they knew when Mangus brought one in, it was shot out of a helicopter because it had a row of 223 bullets right up the back. <laughs> Oh, this man's got lots of property and lots of money. And he hunted with the Duke of Duval. Yeah, the old George Parr ranch George is what Parr. the Mangus is. Yeah. Oh, no, these guys could have, and they had ranches their own, but they go up helicopter at night and shoot them off the ranch anywhere they wanted to go. They went. 
Yeah, we were small time compared to oh, George yeah. Carr and Goose and Mangus. Like I said, and, these guys might be at some fancy dinner party some night too, because they're big time landowners. Yeah. yeah. It's not like in I'm my not, time, that early time, man, it was a way of life. I keep saying that to people. I mean, that's the way we ate. That's just what we did. There's nothing else to do down there. You know, F and fighting. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, I mean, that's it, you know, and go shoot something, you know. And so that's how we entertained our damn self. Plus, we got our food that way. But boys, boy, we'll when they boys. started, <laughs> when when they came out and they changed that law in 1983, and they the Wildlife Conservation Act, you know, I'm kind of studious fellow too. You know, I saw the handwriting on the wall. Plus, I met that little gal, and I said, "If you're gonna quit, do it now." You know, but did you try to convince Charlie to quit? Oh hell no! You didn't do that back. Then. <laughs> Tell that man what to do. You yeah, know, like, he just didn't do it. You know. We wouldn't do that. We were too good of friends. You That's know? why married life and I don't agree. I don't like somebody trying to tell me what to do. Thing, you know, you know, rules and regs just ain't been the way I've lived. Well, I've life. always, I've <laughs> always said, I said Charlie Beatty has no boundaries. If there is a boundary, he put that damn thing himself. It's his <laughs> creation. It ain't somebody else's. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> and it was just, a, like I said, it was just a lot of fun, but. It wasn't worth going to jail or risking, you know, anything. I said, I was trying to start a family, and and I said, yeah, I'm done. You know, I knew he was done before he did. Yeah. He said, I met this guy. I'm just really crazy about it. And I said, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> there goes my outline, buddy. Oh, man. And it was, uh, yeah, that's how I got in trouble on TikTok. Because, and my daughter did it. You know, she, she said, oh, let's. Tell the story about these all these dopes. You don't bring that up. I'm completely banned now. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyhow, it was a Wayne, most stepdad, and he's in his little shop there behind the house, and we had five does hung up. Now, I never killed a doe, but I let my wife shoot. And she shot all five of them. She cried over the first one. By the third one, she was gritting her teeth and getting blood in her eyes. <laughs> but she hit all five of them in the biggest spot on them. With the 22250. I don't know if you know what that does to a doe's guts, but it turns it to mush. Yeah. And I was sick of my stomach cleaning them damn things. But we had them hung up there, you know, and they didn't. Your you, fault. you can't, you can't show no. I mean, I, I had dead animals were chilled. So they were skint, cut off, heads cut off. We were chilling them out to process the meat. Boy, they didn't like that. And hell, they get Charlie for putting a bow over his shoulder or something. You can't show nothing, it seemed like, you know. Yeah. And I don't know. That's but that's when I did. I made that mea culpa. You see my mea culpa reel? I think so. I, I got so many people out of them. That's funny as hell. I, I, that night, I thought about it. I called my daughter. She laughed. Oh, that's funny, Daddy. She said, I'll cook it. So the next day, going, let's do it. So I'm getting on her home, man. I'm not going to get behind all my animals again. I'm just, I mean, you guys don't kick me off TikTok yet, man. I mean, my, my book sales come up a little bit. I'm trying to raise some money for this charity, you know? And, mm -hmm. and I said, oh, baby, is, is that my lunch? She hands me a wooden bowl of rice and two chopsticks. And I said, I'm, I'm going to do it just like y'all do. <laughs> and they let that run. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because you go from Instagram where, hey, you can watch somebody. Whack an animal. Just, you know. Yeah. And, but was that TikTok where you, I heard you, I said, I heard the thump. Yeah. yeah. They, they can show five lines, take down a kudu and you know, viciously kill him on a roadway in front of carloads of kids and they'll let you post that. But you got a gun sling on your shoulder and 
stock shows and no, no, nothing but the stock, and they ban you permanently like they did me. I don't get that. They could could have made some money off of me, but they're you know like all the guys I offered to sell my book at gun gun stores and 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 whatnot, and they wouldn't do it. Now I'm afraid the ranchers we do business with to quit coming in here and buying ammo and guns from us. You know, well, okay, so you don't make any money off my book. I'll just make it all myself. You know, that's the way I feel about TikTok. They'll just cut their own nose off, spite their face. They won't make a penny off of me now. I could have took them somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a there's ladies that'll get on TikTok and they'll they'll literally breastfeed on yeah. like, and I have no problem with people breastfeeding. I just don't want to see it when I get on my social media, bare nipple, everything, yeah. and they're like, and I report it, and they'll be like, "Nah, this is this doesn't violate the community guidelines." I'm it's like, natural. "How's that?" It yeah, it worked <laughs> about four days ago. I turned it on, and there's a girl doing a back arch, and it's looking right at her thing, <laughs> shaved. And naked as day she's born. And I'm going, oh, my God, you know. When I first got on that stuff, you they, you get all these booby shaking. But I figured out how to beat that algorithm, you know. You just thumb through that stuff. So don't look at it. Go you quick. spend any time looking at it, then they'll, they'll quit feeding that stuff to you. Now, all I get is hunting stuff. You guys, everybody, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah. But I'm not real big on it. I, you know, I check my message, do my stuff. Because, hell, I can't. My daughter posts most of the stuff for me. It helps me. I ain't been on that stuff what eight months, nine months, but it's a good way to get advertisement and stuff and get to hook up my buddy again, you know, and everything. But we keep up one another. I mean, pet talk every day, you know. I'm worried though, I was the same way about my buddy Big L. We talked every day, there was not a day I didn't talk to him. And so when his wife Cindy called me, I knew something was wrong. Mm. I said, What's wrong with Larry? She said he's been killed in an accidental shooting. I, I knew it. I, I mean, it's the worst news I could have got. Yeah. I hope I don't hex Pat or, you know, he hex me. I mean, we, you know, like I said on that last podcast, I didn't, Cameron's might set it up. So. How was, how has the perception of, of the value of a deer changed in South Texas over time? I, when I moved here, the high fences and the, like the monetary value you can get out of deer is kind of shocking. Like I've heard of guided hunts, but down here, you spend what you spend on a pickup on a deer hunt. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Do you want a new truck or do you want to kill a buck? Yeah. <laughs> that simple. When I was young, 14 years old, shot my first doe in Brownwood, the top end lease there. And they had some 150-something inch deer and they were killing them. It was 150 bucks a gun for a season lease. That included your turkey. And, and so do the math. When I got to South Texas in 77, I'm 19, five years later. Right, top end hunting in Demet County was fifteen hundred dollars a gun for a season. You get a guy now and then he got this one ninety on his wall there, the owner of the land. He said, "Now I've got a pasture I charge twenty five for." That was he was also day leasing, but he said, "Where that buck came from, I have to get more money. There's better deer over there, and it's more solitude, and you're likely you're going to get a bit. You're going to get a good. You're going to get a twenty five hundred dollar deer." Well, it wasn't another year or two, and three thousand became the going rate for an 8.145 to 150 buck and Catula all around there, you know, there's a $3,000 hunt. They put that label on it and it didn't matter, you know, where you come from or what you thought about it. If you want to go down there and shoot one legal, it was a $3,000 pull of the trigger, you know, 
who has that right? You know, I think it came from the taxes ever increasing, the government raising the land tax. And those guys, the more land they had, the more land poor they were. They had to pay more taxes, so they just had to start charging for the deer. The cattle weren't bringing them any money. Pat's talked about that. The deer, when, when, when I see a buck now, I'm getting more like my old boss. You know, he'd say, I ain't never seen one big enough yet that I wouldn't sell it. When he saw a buck, Bunny Crockett, he saw dollar signs. Yeah, that's what you have to think of when you instead of the love for hunting and, and you know get excited about the big buck and dream buck rack comes into your mind dollar signs come up with a negative to the side of it that means that's how much you're going to have to pay to hunt the deer mm-hmm. it's ridiculous that that even has to be weighed into the equation i hate it i almost don't want to hunt anymore because of the the money the you know the value and all that you know it's mm-hmm. it's a carpet baggins modern I, day I carpet never was baggins. real big about the you know measuring your deer and stuff now charlie can do it he can look and tell you within a point you know how how big a thing is to me it was always just the aesthetics you know if that thing was beautiful yeah. pretty i didn't care what it scored i wouldn't put them on the wall you know he's just a beautiful deer you know? i had a little mexican girlfriend in kingsville i had her trained to tell you which deer would make the book or not i'd take her in the showroom let her look at all them big book deer being mounted she looked at this one buck. He was not only book. He was beautiful. He had the big old diamond-shaped bladed tines, rocking chair beams. He had some wiggle to his spiral to his bladed points and real sassy rack, you know, beautiful deer. One of the prettiest ones I've ever seen for a typical. And she goes, that deer will make the book. And I said, yes, he will, dude. And she said, he's also sexy. She said, if I was a doe, I would let him have me. <laughs> I would present myself. <laughs> yeah, if I was a doe, I would let him have me. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. It just seemed like he just went from there and just, God dang, he just went crazy, you know. Of course, I quit a long time ago, you know. I wouldn't, I ain't going to do it. Just I'm not going to pay it kind of money. There's, I got friends. There's people that let me go hunting and stuff down there. I care not about it anymore. But I'd like to go in a, like a, on a big place, like what I was talking about. If I could get on a big place and take my grandsons. You know, I like to take them out there at that 32 Winchester special, that lever gun, and let me rattle one up for them, you know, and kill them. Like that. And I, I'd get a charge out of that. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I just I don't have a lot of interest in it anymore. You sell enough books, take them on a hunt. Yeah, well, like I nose. said, they got places. They you got some friends that got a lot of property down there, and they they take the boys, and that's nice. But I don't think they're going to let me go out there and rattle horns and you know, bring something in there because I'm subject to get a good one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the rattling part is always a really fascinating one for me because we hunt a lot of pressured deer, and oh, yeah. and it seems like. It just amazes me the not not the vocalizations, but the responses they give you guys to rattling. Every one of you guys talks about rattling and bucks. That's the way we did it. I mean, they've been doing that. Indians did that. You know? Well, there's a lot more to it. I ain't told all my t- tricks, you know, in the past, but I discovered things being out there that long. And one of the things I discovered one time, and I was unarmed. I'd went in and planted a big recon, you know. Took all my supplies back to the devil's den. I'm on my way out unarmed. It's warm weather in mid-November. And so it's pre-rut that I'd went in there to leave all that stuff and left my gun bow in the camp. Well, I'm in a brush pile and I'm heading for Sarita to be picked up up there behind this old buckhorn saloon store, you know. And I'm about 
probably 400 yards maybe from this gate guard shack that's about three miles deep on that Sarita Road to the Lapar Ranch house. And I'm in a brush pile, leaned up against it, having a dip. And it's about 4.30 in the afternoon. And I heard a sound I'd never heard in there before. And I can imitate it. It was like this. Oh, oh, oh. Three times. Three times. So that's nine. And I listened and I went, I don't believe I've ever heard a call like that. I thought it was some parrot or something. It got out of somebody's <laughs> pen. And boy, I mean, all of a sudden I hear, this big 10 point jumps over the brush pile. I'm like, yes, right over my right shoulder. And right down there to that sound. And I went, it was a doe in heat. And I knew what it was then. So I started using that call. They'd come in on me and bow up. I mean, I had to get a tree between me more than once, and I quit using it. I quit using it. I was going to show my buddy Dennis Music in the Robert East once how effective that is. It drives them nuts. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to clear the water out of my nose. Had a north wind we were walking into all morning, and it was cold. And I was getting kind of watery nosed. And so before I did it, we walked up on this buck, and I thought this is the perfect chance to get him to see this. So I put us down, you know, got down on our knees in the cactus. It was a cactus flat with a rise like this, you know. And so the buck's rack was sticking up first, and we got down. And I said, I can do my sin. I can just watch this. So before I did the doe call, I was just going to blow the water out of my nostril to kind of clear the deck. And I just went, <laughs> and when I did that, that buck just right to us in three leaps he closed 40 yards or so and got right in our face and just turned and leaped back out and he goes what thing you didn't make the dough call and he's already on our ass like it. he goes don't do that no more you know all you gotta do is blow hard out one nostril when they're close and it just drives them nuts I, that's kind of like the snort wheeze style of, of calling but I stood up one time after cleaning my thumbnail out. I'd made the doe call late and the rattle just got a little desperate and nothing came. And I went, I'm going to make the doe call. So I make the doe call and I got bored and reached in my pocket, started cleaning blood out from under my fingernails. And I looked up when I saw movement and this buck was running. He'd seen me. It was warm. It warmed up that morning. And I took my shirt off and was sitting there with, you know, just nothing but my skin showing. And it must have been the color of a, a deer to him in the shade and the shadows like that. And boy, he when he'd already heard the doe call, he was coming. Well, when he saw me, he thought I was either buck or doe. He come running at me. Man, I had to stand up and get around behind this tree because I knew what was going down then. He was coming in full throttle. He was aggressive. And he just bowed. He come to me and then he was looking confused, like, what the heck? You know, and then he went <laughs> and bowed up, put his rack out in front of his head. And I was like, the son of a bitch is gonna jump my ass. I jumped behind these trees, and then I found out he's like, and yelled, jumped at him and took off. I mean, you can get them so turned on, you're in danger. And I've done it before, and then I went, what did I do that again for? You know, get another one right back on me and be in jeopardy. And I was like, I've got to quit doing that. I can't use that doe call. It works them up too much. It's far greater influence on them than the rattle. They think the girl's ready then. You know, it's you know, sweetheart. I'll be right there. Charlie gave the best secret away that's been kept for a long time, too, about rattling. Because I, I learned this from Uncle Zenas. I mean, you know, this man, you know, he owed it a long time ago. But he taught me, he said, when you set up to rattle, you make damn sure that you can see downwind of you. He says, because I promise you. That's where that big one's going to come from. Yeah, the from. bigger they are, the more likely they're going to come in down surfing, you know, 
they're going to circle that. They're going to try to get a smell. You used the hot glands oh, yeah. and go and I, I stunk so bad after being out there so long, and that was one of George's arguments. He'd say, I think you do better on a three-day hunt. You don't stink as bad, and, you know, the bucks don't wind you as bad. And I said, you cover it. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I smell like a werewolf out there for 27 days. I said, you got to combat that. So what I'd do is the first buck I killed, I'd, and I'd keep doing it. If it was a nastier buck I killed later, I'd take the freshest, nastiest hawks I could find. And I'd cut them off the buck I killed, salt them, put them in a Ziploc bag. Then I would add to that some dough and heat piss. I'd sit five yards over here, one in the tree about head high, and set one over here head high, a little hole punched in them. I'd slip them on a broke-off twig, hang them up in the air with a drift good, and so when the deer are coming around this way, they smell that first. They just turn when they hit that scent line and come right at it. See, that mm. keep them from getting in your scent, the line of fire. They turn and come right up to you. Be five yards on this side or that side of you. And, boy, I mean, when they got that close in, boy, their eyes would stretch like hell. Boy, they didn't know what to do. I mean, they'd be looking at me from here to you, you know, where they saw me sometimes. I had but buddy that, near that's shit a, his pants that's once. secret right there, I'm telling yeah, you. I put, was, I put one so close to a buddy of mine, he could have licked his nose for him. And I knew it was fixing to happen. I just put my face down and let that buck walk right past me. And I looked over my shoulder after he got past me, and I knew it was fixing to happen, and it did. And that buck, he got face-to-face -face with Leighton, and he just exploded and turned inside out. When they spooked that close to you like it, I don't know how they do it. Their nose goes between their front legs and out their ass. I don't understand how they can turn around like that. But he blasted out of there like a bolt of lightning, and I was laughing my ass off, and Leighton goes, did you see that? I said, I saw that before it happened. I knew yeah, that buck was fixing to explode on him. You know, I have been hearing these stories for 45 years, and ain't nobody can paint pictures like that man can with words, mm -hmm. you know? And you just can't, you just go, damn, you know, and, uh, and I've been laughing just like you guys are laughing <laughs> for 45 years. After that, that's a serious thing, too. <laughs> that buddy of mine took his kid, 13-year-old, killed that double drop, 230-inch buck. And I've done this many times. When you get a buck hung up out there and he's rubbing, but he won't come on in and show himself, you got a better chance of rubbing him in. And you can try that, and if that don't work, then it's my rule is do it all over again, all at the same time. Don't just rattle, clash the horns, bang the brush, scrape sand out across the leaves, ball in the middle of the ground, you know, grind the horns, and then, and then come off with a good clatter coming off. Well, Dennis had the perfect case scenario set up for that. He rattled up a buck across a break from him in a live oak month there, and it hung up on a rub and scrape of his own. And he pawed the scrape a while, and he rubbed and rubbing his preorbital glands on the limb, overhanging limb above the scrape. And he tried to rub him on over like I taught him, and, and it didn't work. He, he looked that way, then he'd go back to pawing the scrape. Well, this Boone and Crockett standing over his shoulder in the shadows through the live oaks there watching that buck. He wasn't concerned with them. He could see them from behind, but they weren't moving them any. They were standing still. And that buck wouldn't come. And Dennis finally said, Charlie said, dude, if don't nothing else works, rubbing again don't work, do it all again all at once. So he did. He rubbed the tree as he clashed the horns and made as much noise as he could and drug sand out across the leaves, a big spray of sand across the leaves. 
ground the horns good up in him and come off. And when he did, that buck that was hung up on that scrape across the break from him said, fuck it. And just took off, come running right at him. And when he did, here come the Boone and Crockett after that deer. Right over their shoulder. And he goes, shoot that one, son. And that kid, he said, don't miss him. Right behind the shoulder when that big monster stopped. He took a few steps, that 222 in his lungs, to his knees. He goes, I gotta congratulate you, son. He said, You just shot a Boone and Crockett. And that's the fact. When they took it into the taxidermy shop, that boss of mine saw that deer. And he said, You shot that deer, boy? And he said, Yes, sir. He said, I gotta shake your hand. You just won the lottery. See, that's what it boils down to on who kills the Boone and Crockett 230, 240, whatever. You're the lottery winner. The odds are that somebody's going to kill one, but it ain't going to be you. It'll be someone but you. Well, it was him. You know, someday I'd like to buy that deer back from the, you know, collector that's ended up with it and give it back to the boy. You know, his daddy should have never let that deer get sold. You know, hard times, you know. Yeah. But, you know, when all fails, do it all over again, all at once. That's my motto. The difficulty, I believe, that people have, you know, you just talk about these large branches and stuff. You know, most people don't get the opportunity to hunt places like that. And for them to come to horns like they do, you've got to have a good buck to doe ratio, you know, yeah. or that, you know, they're just not going, they're not going, if he's got a hot doe, he's not leaving it. I'm I can't you. count the hunts, the days I've hunted and never saw a doe. Nothing but bucks, but rattle up a hundred. And one rainy day, never saw a doe. You think there wasn't a doe living there? I've seen days after days like that. Now that's how many bucks are there. And then you can hunt that place and not see a deer in the bad weather. And then you have a front hit, and they're just in a frenzy like a school of sharks. There's a buck behind every tree, and they're just running everywhere. And I've had buddies with me, and I said, "Shoot one of them." <laughs> I can't shoot good running. Give me the gun and let me shoot one of them. I mean, big bucks just running in on every rattle, two, three at a time. Give me the gun, then I'll show you how to hit one of them. <laughs> you know, it's just crazy. You, you just don't. And that's why I used to say they don't even know what they've got. I said the ranch does not know what they have. They have never walked out in the depths of it and rattled during the prime time with the prime weather and gone about it right. They don't know what's there. There's a buck behind every tree then. A same spot that you might could have went through the day before, seen nothing. But then they just frenzy. They just come out of the thickets, you know. It's, it's addictive as any drug. It's probably more addictive than crack, cocaine, heroin, and everything put together. <laughs> It's way better than sex. That's like I told the first cop. <laughs> that, that, that cop said, tell me about it, CB. We're on the way down there. He's all fired up. You know, just kept, kept telling me, asking the same question. He goes, tell me how good it is. I said, I'm going to be nice. <laughs> I said, it's better than sex. He goes, oh, come on now. I said, there's no comparison. He goes, I don't believe that. And I said, well, you'll see. We get down there. He said, man, I think I need to take a nap. We drove all night, walked, you know, nine miles deep when we first rattled and got past the risk in a mile and a half. So we've got to get off this main road. In fact, a truck came down and it was probably Joe Arrington coming in to, you know, run security, listen for shots. So we bust off the main road. We get down in there and he goes, man, I'm sleepy. I'm tired. I'm not, I need a nap. I said, well, let me rattle one time. And then you tell me if you want to take a nap or not. All right. I beat the bone and three bucks came running in and a scout and he goes, fuck it. Let's hunt. <laughs> he kills his first buck. He looked at me and he goes, 
You were right. It's better than sex. <laughs> That's putting it nice. He saw it all. The next cop, he went crazy. He saw it all. I mean, I've got a whole lot coming in part two that I can't get into. It's just too lengthy, you know. I call it extensive. They're on. <laughs> they're on. It's extensive. Right there that I couldn't do. I mean, he's got a hard go. He takes these damn people. Bubba, I go over that damn fence. I'm by myself. I don't want to babysit nobody. I know where I'm at. I know what I'm doing. And I do not want somebody else causing me problems. But Charlie, take him, get people in there and let them kill a big old buck. I know you got aggravated a hundred times in there. I wanted to kill some of them and tie them in two pieces <laughs> on my backpack. But, you know, when you're friends, you get over all That's that That's what shit, I mean. You, know, you got a heart of gold and he do it, you know. I told that one guy, I took the old man, I said, I'm going to tell you something before we go. I said, now, look, you weigh about 230 pounds. I'm about 190. I said, don't get injured stepping in a gopher hole and break your leg or something. I'll have to shoot you and cut you in two pieces to carry you out of there. <laughs> so, so watch your step. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And then, of course, that terrain that, that he hunted most of the time. I mean, you went out west, you Robert East, Pelon Sea, all that stuff, you know. But that 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 canopy, that that Kennedy is just is yeah, it's just one of the prettiest places there is. Oh, it's beautiful, just yeah. gorgeous. And of course, I'd down there hunting Santa Fe or someplace like that, and it's sparse, you know. But when you're by yourself, you know, and you ain't got to worry about nobody else, you know, you know what they can see, what they can't. In the early days, you know, you didn't have the the planes and the helicopters like they mm -hmm. put up later on, you know. Um, they didn't expect us to do that. They said, oh, these guys just run up down the road, kill a deer, you know. The ones that hopped the fence, you know, hell, we had it all to ourselves. Well, you just don't leave tracks. You don't make a mess. You don't don't let them know you're there. You know? When you when you shoot a deer off the road, they know you're probably a meat hunter. Occasionally mm -hmm. a trophy's killed off the road. Mm -hmm. But when Tom East it would hear my shots 10, 12, 13, 14 miles deep, he knew I just shot a son of a bitch. And <laughs> he couldn't stand the thought of that. He knew what was there. He'd fly over them in helicopters. You see them all the time. He knew. So when I popped them shots deep. It was a different ball game. They knew they were after a headhunter. Yeah. And a, and a good one because, you know, to get back there that far and know the woods, you had to be pretty good at it. And they thought this thing was going to do some damage. We don't get him out of here. Old Tom died the year after I quit. He died in 84. Coming out of Santa Fe. I guess Mike. I heard he was in the candy when he died. No, he was, he on, was on Santa Fe. He was on Santa Fe. At the bump gate, they said he had a heart attack. He was in that suburban. That's how they found him. But boy, he did. He didn't, he didn't want nobody to kill him damn deer. He'd be at the gate when I went in with Harry Riskin. And he kept a brown skin tan, he bald shaved head and on his whole head was tan brown. He just wore this red bandana scarf around his neck. Well, when I'd pull in that gate and he'd look over and see me in the car with Harry, you could just see the red run up his neck into his face like a thermometer. <laughs> he knew me and Harry were fixing to go jump his fence and whoop some ass, you know. <laughs> and seeing the situation I was in. Tommy and my stepdaddy were buddies. I mean, they didn't own each other their whole life, you know. And Tom would come into that shop. We did. We made dehorners for him, some other stuff, you know. And uh, and Wayne knew him. And after they said hello, Wayne just talked Spanish to him. And Tommy East, I mean, he's 
Anglo just like the rest of us here. And I tell you what, he'd much rather speak Spanish than with English. Hmm. He's more comfortable. He's used to it. That's what he spoke every day. Worked all them hands. Yeah, and Wayne would just out of courtesy, you know, he just switched right to Spanish. See, that works good for you unless you're in jail because <laughs> they don't like you knowing what they're saying. A lot of their Spanish oh, and they want you out of there. They like to talk in private. You know, they don't want you to hear what they're saying. But I said, I got a little, I get a little wrong at time too, but as he d did some things and you know, I said, it just, you know, went near and it wasn't so much that he was, he said what he said to my stepdaddy that just, I mean, pissed me off, man. Cause you know, by then I was probably probably 20, 21 years old. You know, like I thought I was a man. I acted like a man, and I expect that man to come and tell me if he's yeah. going to tell somebody. You know, and that's what made me so damn mad. He went yeah. around me to my stepdad. Yeah, that's like them King Ranch Cowboys. They wouldn't tell me nothing in my face. They stayed away from me at the dance, but they sent me that message: "We can catch you. When we do, we're going to stretch you between two cowboys and kick your guts out." I said, well, since they weren't man enough to come over here and tell me theirself, I said, give them a message. You tell them, I said, if they do that, they just go ahead and kill me. Because if they don't, I said, I'm going to go back with as many case boxes, uh, 22 shorts as I can carry, hollow points, and put one in the guts every cow they got. And then we'll see who's kicked in the guts, you know. They they just talk shit to try to bluff and intimidate. Well, they did, most folks. Yeah, Most folks, they'd, they'd run off, you know. But you got guys like us just don't have that. I remember, that when, gene, yeah, I went, I remember when I, me and Betty broke up for a year and I go back down there and, you know, I waited till the right time. Alabama came on playing old flame. <laughs> I went over there and I said, mind if I dance with Betty? She was engaged to one of the King Ranch foremans, old J.K. Milam. He knew he had to pass the acid test. He said, sure, Charlie. So I took her out on the dance floor and she went to tears. They went the engagement. I said, I knocked all them King Ranch Cowboys out without ever throwing a punch. <laughs> Everybody of mine in town won bets. We were betting $20 bills all over town. I'm That's betting on Betty. Days too. When him and Betty were together, of course I knew her too. And he'd go to that KC Hall and I'm telling you what, buddy, they'd clear the floor for the two of them. Them two-stepping fools right there, they'd take the whole damn dance floor. People just sat there and watch. They, they were good dancers. I trained them myself. See, that's, <laughs> the, that's the way you get a good dancer. You get one that, you know, had never danced and trained her. I but trained they, one they put on a show. It was a hell of a good, good play. It was a lot of fun. That little We had a lot of fun in Casey Hall. Well, that band, Sandy Sixpack, oh should have been world famous on some kind of movie, you know, like Urban Cowboy and all. That band could play any hit current song. You know, as well as all the old country classics, it was just a hell of a band. Mm. You know, they were they, in it. We catch them there, and we catch them in Alice at the KC Hall. There, I went to San Antonio and caught them there. Oh, really? Time. Yeah, they saw us. And they hollered. I'd rather go to the Kingsville because every time I went to Alice, I got in a fight in that place. <laughs> I always got in a fight in that place, and it just something about it. But, yeah, they they quit. They made a million dollars. The the head guy in the band that formed the band. Old Sandy himself, he, you know, made a million dollars and quit. He said that was my plan from the start, become a millionaire and then get out of it. Mm -hmm. He got tired of playing. I know yeah. what was popular back then was old Pat Benatar. Yeah. And they'd play Hit Me With Your Best Shot. They'd oh, play man, it all. They could get it too, man. You know? 
Yeah, it was a good times. It's just a long yeah. time ago. For these people that are uh, kind of doing this new wave of hunting, sell cams over a corn feeder on these on these big vast ranches like that. Are they are they getting a shallow version of what you guys have seen these places produce? Because what you're talking about seems like something out of a movie. Well, that's just it. I don't know anymore because with the high fencing and what they've done, I, I, you know, I don't know. But just like that Bucky talk about that boy killed, that thing's for real. You know, that was a real deal. You know, that wasn't none of this genetically mutated stuff or fed or whatever they're doing to them to make them get like that. Uh, yeah, I, not unless you got out there and did it, you know, I guess. It was just different times, long time ago, Charlie. I have seen a pile of dead bucks in front of a cooler. Cooler's full. They couldn't even put another one in there, so they had them piled all that over the floor in front of it. All cause there was a one fifty buck in there. He was the best one, and you can see it in the picture. This guy, you know, sent me DM me, and he said, "This is the Beretta pasture. It's all that's left of it." Kennedy just shot out. What he don't know is. I could still go back through that entire ranch where they've shot the piss out of it on the right day in the right weather and rattle up a good deer. You'll never kill all them big deer out of that brush. They're too smart. Those bigger deer have bigger, better brains. They just, they survive. And so they're still there, but those clowns down there hunting those places, they, they can't kill the big one. They shoot the first thing they see. And in no time, they think they've shot it out. They hadn't. They shot the piss out of it, but they hadn't shot it out. There's still some big deer. That brush is too thick. You couldn't get them all out of there with a helicopter and 223. George Parr couldn't have eradicated the white-tailed deer out of that range. And now, if came, George Moore didn't have family and wife and kids and a job, he might have eradicated right. them. <laughs> yeah, when George didn't have family support, he didn't give it Because he was a hunting fool, too, boy. That was his run buddy, you know. I told some stories recently on another podcast that George did. I, I ought to tell one of them. I don't know which one's the funniest. I think this one probably he he calls me in the early fall, still kind of late summer, and the the guard shack talking about the guard shack deal again on the Borregas Gate in the King Ranch on 141 up near the airport. It was inactive because there was no current drilling rig going on inside that pasture, so they shut that gate down. weren't paying a guard to stay there all night, and he knew that he he had the inside information. You know, he knew there wasn't any drilling going on in there, so he thought. Let's drink some whiskey and go push the gate open. So they did. They just put his old Bronco up against the gate, put it in low lock, and pushed till they snapped the lock on the chain. It's just a chain of locks. He snapped the smallest one on the chain, and he goes in, and he calls me. He goes, I'm looking at six sets of back straps and my flow on a tarp. He said, three hogs, three bucks. He told me what he did. He said, we're having another whiskey, and then we're going to go back. And I said, George, don't go back. He said, ah, we won't get in trouble. I said, yeah, they're going to be waiting for you by now. They probably got onto that lock being broke, and that, you know, because they check them on the hour probably. I said, they're going to probably be onto your act. Don't go back. Nah, I'm going to have another whiskey, and then we'll go somewhere else. Well, I said, I'm telling you, George, don't go back. He goes back. Well, he goes up, push, pushes the gate open on the north side, goes north around behind the airport. In no time, they're on him. They're on him from the air probably first, and they send in ground units, and he sees headlights coming from behind him and chasing him, chases on. He runs it as fast as he can down that road to the north, and he sees a bump gate coming, and it's Caliche Roads, you know, at a point near the gate. There's a lot of loose gravel, and he starts smoking it up, skidding. He couldn't get much below 50. 
bang, hits that bump gate, knocks the whole front left quarter panel to that Bronco off on the ground there. He didn't know it. He thought he lost it later in a heavy brush. But he's going through all this heavy brush, and low lock lights out to get away, and they get away, him and two buddies. They took out 400 yards of King Ranch fence on that 281. They go up towards Alice and Agadulis, you know, circle back around through uh, Driscoll and, and, and Bishop, and they get away. Well, the next morning, he knew all his tires were full of cactus needles, and he just wanted to just replace all four tires. He shouldn't have done this. What he did next got him caught. He gave his wife orders to take the Bronco after he went to work. He's working out there selling these where Pat used to work. And take it in and put new tires. Well, mid-morning, here comes Texas State Game Wardens, Red uh, Rangers, Texas Rangers, Ranch Security, looking for this Bronco with this missing, matching front quarter panel they had. There it was. <laughs> they had him. They go selling these plants, and they get the foreman, and they say, look, who's George Moore's best hunting buddies out here? And he told them, he goes, get them in here. They got the two hunting buddies in first and, and pulled George off to the side somewhere else, and then they said, all right, now we've got y'all. George has already told us that y'all were with him, and we've got him. We've got the matching missing quarter panel. You're all going down. Y'all are probably going to lose your jobs if you don't cooperate. Here's some of that political stuff. And they roll over on George. He hadn't said nothing. George wouldn't admit to God what he did wrong <laughs> if he caught red-handed. <laughs> and so they didn't get it out of George. They got it out of them. Then they pinned it on George. Yeah. All right, now we got your buddies turning state's evidence. They don't want to lose their jobs. They got wives and families. So he went down. He got $4,800 restitution for the fence and the bump gate damage. And, and he got uh, two years probation. This was back still under a Class C misdemeanor. And I mean, it's about 85 when I was in my own taxidermy up there in Fort Worth. Well, you know, he served his probation and all. And so he got his hunting license back early fall. He decided to go with a guy named Yockley down there out of the Baffin Bay and go hunt the Kennedy Shore for Nilgar or something. And they go out. They're out most of the night, light spotlighting the darn shoreline. And they come back empty. When they pulled up to the boat dock, this game wouldn't come out from under that dock with waiters on. He'd been sitting there waiting oh. on them. And he puts a flashlight in their eyes. He goes, Yachlin, what have y'all been doing? He flashed around in the boat, no animals. He goes, didn't get nothing, huh? He goes, let me see your license. He didn't recognize George. <laughs> George pulled out his license and unfolded it. And he goes, surprise. <laughs> game one said, buddy, aren't you in enough trouble already? I mean, First thing he did was go outlaw hunting when he got out of his probation. Yeah, that was George. Oh, yeah, he but was. he heard about a big Boone and Crockett neck mount in an old ranch cabin on a, a 7,000 acre ranch over in the brush over there around like close to Robert E's. You know, and anyway, he his sole intent was to go and steal that deer head, but he wanted to rattle it and see if he'd kill a good buck while he's there. So he spent a whole day rattling. He rattled up most of the whole 7,000 acres. And he, he goes to that cabin after dark. Nobody's there. He breaks in, climbs on two chairs. He stacked up, gets the old neck mount down, and he sells the rack to my boss down there. Well, the boss didn't know how hot it was going to be, you know. George didn't give him any details. He said, I just bought this off a of mask in a bar parking lot, you know, lied to him. Well, he bought it and he sold it for several thousand probably to this doctor in Houston. Well, the doctor in Houston didn't know it was red hot. He has small boss mounted on a fresh cape. 
he enters it in the August Texas Trophy Hunter, you know, San Antonio competition. All right. The Texas Rangers identify it from a photo in a posted wanted wanted poster ad in the back of their summer issue. And they bust him, and he's busted on felony fraud for possession and, and presenting it fraudulently. He tells them where he got it. They, they go to my old boss, and he goes, I bought that rack off George Moore. And they go out and arrest George on a drilling rig at Driscoll or so, and Robstown, I think. And he says, I bought that head off a Mexican in a bar parking lot for $500. <laughs> and they couldn't even file a charge on him. I mean, there was no stopping George. He was a runaway train, you know, just like I was at one point. Charlie could write a book about that, man. We're going to eventually. And yeah, we got other people we're going to write. <laughs> as soon as they die, we're going to write their book. Charlie and I like this right here. You ready? <laughs> yeah, when, he, when this one man dies, we're going to tell his story. That it's just. I don't ever want anybody to think that you can do this stuff anymore i mean no. I, I don't want somebody getting in trouble even trying. yeah i don't just, want to encourage just, gutsy kids getting trouble hell no i mean I, I enjoy being able to tell y'all about it and try to explain because it was such a different mindset back yeah. then you know and uh but i sure as hell don't want anybody to get in trouble trying to do that stuff you know you can't do it anymore you think about it they didn't have cell phones they didn't have nothing hell when fred bought that dadgum police scanner I thought that was a dang CB. The next year, I everybody said, that's had the one. Biggest CB I ever seen. Yeah. He said, "That ain't no CB. That's a police scanner." Well, what the hell you do with that? He said, "Well, I know a fella that knows a fella." <laughs> and he got all the crystal. We had crystal, Jim Wells County, Clayburg County, Kennedy County, Brooks County, Sheriff's Park. <laughs> we had King Ranch Security. We had the game wardens. <laughs> we had Border Patrol. <laughs> We could listen to everybody. And I remember going out that road one night. And he said, we're going to kill a buck. So I know how to meet. I said, let's go. You know? So we got out there road. We was waiting for it to kind of clear. I'd hid the gun. You know, we was fixing to light up, try to find something. And about that time, that thing went off. God dang it. You could hear them, you know. They're heading west on 141. Well, I'm on 285. That thing's 20 miles north of us, you know. I'm going, okay. And he said, yeah, they're, they're, head, they're heading west. And, then you hear the game wards calling. We're right behind you. Well, hell, that's ranch security must have been, you know. And then they said, call uh, Brooks County and Jim Wells and get the sheriffs coming from both directions, mm -hmm. you know. And I sat there to Fred, and Fred was looking, he kind of grinning. I said, hell, Fred, this is cheating. You know, I mean, God dang, they ain't got a chance. We know exactly where they're at. He just got to do that. But the first time we got stopped by game warden, and he looked over and he saw that thing. He's like old Tom East, that red come boy, up. They, boy, they hated it when everybody got scanners. Reggie, my buddy, had a pocket scanner. He knew if anybody was saying anything at all about him when he went down and did the lights out turnaround right before he'd load me. So we had scanner, you know. And you know, it's a big advantage. But I wouldn't take cell phones on those last nine years hunting because they reversed it. They start tracking you with your Oh, yeah. I'll show you where, yeah. Sure. So, you know, it's like old, old George said. He said, well, just turn it around on them then. He said, boast you to hog with a tranquilizer dart, strap your phone around his neck. <laughs> They'll be following that hog all over the ranch while you're hunting. 
George didn't take no shit off him. He could think up quick a way to counter whatever they did. Yeah. Well, we we obviously, you know, I don't think you guys are advocating for this at all anymore, but oh, we God. we don't agree that people should go poach, spotlight, no. shoot a deer off the road, any sort of those things. Um, but you guys are obviously you're selling both of your books. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you other people are benefiting off the sale of your book. I think both of you guys have some one an arrangement like that. I don't I want people to know what if when they buy this book where some of that money's gonna go. Well, mine's my daughter. You know, my daughter has started a 501c by herself and she has a school called the Oasis Children Foundation for autistic children. And uh, I said the last page of my book is her story. And that girl that she's with is my niece. She's 42, nonverbal, and my kids grew up looking at that, and both of my girls are involved in it now. The oldest one's a diagnostician, and Ashley's got that school. Yeah, he's not BSing about it. Pat's gotten soft. I think we both have. <laughs> he hugs those little autistic kids in his daughter's school, and his heart breaks, you know, and they love him. I they had, hang on him like their own daddy that they never had. I had something happen to me just last week. I went in there to mail books. And there's a new little girl. She's getting ready for a summer session. She's got a few new kids. This little girl, she's about 10, 11 years old, got severe learning disability. I mean, she asked my name four or five times. Yeah. And uh, she's very timid. She's a pretty little girl, dark hair, dark eyes, but just sullen and, you know, very timid. We're all in the cafeteria. The teachers were there. My daughter's there. And that little girl came up to me and put her head right there on my chest and gave me like a cat hug. It must have lasted three or four seconds. Well, good mind's that big. My daughter's eyes, are, they'd never seen her do anything like that because usually they're standoffish. And she pulled away from me and just kind of, she was going to get my response. And I looked at her and I said, Aubrey, you're going to be my favorite. And she put a smile on her face past her ears and I had to go to my damn office because I freaking tears were coming out of my damn eyes. You know, I didn't want them kids to see me crying. You yeah, know, he's wimping out on me. Yeah. <laughs> I just you carried your heart out, you know, yeah. and been around it now for 40 years. My niece, my daughter and I have a dream. We have a dream and we love to love. And it ain't, we're not ever going to do it in these books. I mean, I guarantee you, I don't get to sell a million. I mean, couldn't afford to do it. But there's billionaires out there. that got more damn money than they need. And someday one of them is going to say, you know, I'm going to write them a damn check. But we'd like to have an oasis for people that outlive their caregivers. Hell, we're looking at it in my family. You know, my sister's 77, that girl's mother. Mm -hmm. You know, have some place that they could go and live their life out and be able to do what they can. And the sad thing is people, you know, around autistic kids, they get real nervous because, you know, they're fritzy and they don't. Bubba, there's people inside there. The big problem is they can't talk. They can't communicate, you know. Yeah, it breaks your damn heart. And to see my girl every day, just that's what she lives to do. Well, I said, hell. Like I said, I wanted to write that book, tell them old stories, get them down because they're lost if they did, if I didn't. And then I wanted to validate my buddy here. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people said that, hey, that crazy man didn't do that. The hell he didn't. Like I said, I got after our action reports. I knew what was going on, you know. And, uh, but if I could do something and maybe touch somebody out there with some money someday and make that donation, we're going to make it happen. I just, at the, my point in my life, I want to do something good. And that's, that's what I'm, that's what we I'm got doing. a lot of uh, 
what do they call that? Are you making up for all the wrong you've done? <laughs> Restitution no or something longer, like that. <laughs> we're no longer these old rebel outlaws. Yeah. We're two old men that are trying to get right and make it into heaven when we die. <laughs> and what. do some good. You know, just do some good. Now, it's just so easy. I've got a, an outreach planned, and, and it's a prison outreach. And, you know, what a lot of people don't know about me is when I started going to church and got saved, you know, during that time, I, I'm married, I've got a son, I've got my own taxidermy shop, and I'm jailed right here in Georgetown on a criminal non-support warrant from my first marriage, my first son. And so I go to jail over a couple of thousand dollars and my first ex lying on me saying I laughed at her stuff, and I'm mad, I'm confused. I'm like, you know, come on, God, i got a life. I, can't, I don't have time for this. So first three and a half days, I'm jail waiting on my buddies to pass the hat and get me out for a couple thousand. You know, I'm angry. I got an attitude. I said, if there weren't criminals, there wouldn't even be a jail. Then I wouldn't be in one. You know, I was getting real frustrated inside. You know, I'm just having a hard time financially with a hot check writing wife running all over town spending my money. So I'm jailed and I'm angry about three days. I wouldn't even talk to God. I'm just in my bunk mad, just confused, you know. So after about three days, I'm in chicken coop with about 35 other men and for minor warrants. And so all of a sudden I said, all right, God, whatever you got me here for to show me, let's get on with it. Show it to me. Show me why I'm here. Because you apparently got some kind of hand in this. So the next morning, the jailer comes over there and he goes, Baden, come here to me. He goes, you're in here for about as little offense as you could be here for. He said, you want to become trustee? I said, well, what's that? He said, well, you'll serve the food, wash the dishes. He said, but time will pass faster. You have a little freedom in the hallways and stuff. He says, up to you. I said, yeah. He said, well, let me go put you in here and let the captain talk to you. Captain runs me about through the same spiel. All right, you start in the morning. So I get up real early, 5 o'clock. We got to leave the chicken coop, one half of it divided, and go into the kitchen. We start serving the food, rolling out the, you know, roller deals with all the trays in them and stuff. And I go with one guy and we go to this cell block after cell block. But about the second one we got to, he switched. He goes, here, pour the milk. Let me handle these trays in this one. I done emptied my deal. And um, so I'm pouring the milk. There's this slot where these prisoners would stick their hands through. And instead of one cup, you could see where they chewed the top rim off that foam cup where they could put two out there and they'd get a little bit extra doing that. And they'd hold them out there and I'd pour that liquid Ajax. It you know, smelled like ammonia, that powdered milk, terrible. But they wanted it and I was kind of like, man, I wouldn't even want that. And you know, I'm seeing these hands after hands come to this little vent, this hole, this port. And I was like, I had a little self-righteous kick going, you know. I thought I was some little bit better than prisoners, criminals. I thought I'd cleaned up my act. And I was sitting there thinking, Look at the hands on them criminals. Look at them criminal hands. And boy, God jumped all over me. He said, look up. I looked up for the first time. I saw this vent, this little window. And I'm looking at these eyes. And he said, the eyes are the windows to the soul. Those are not the hands of a criminal. Those are the hands of a living soul. And I looked back down and started pouring the milk. And I began to tear up. And he said, you love them, don't you? And I said, yes, sir. I saw the hands of the Lord come down in a transparent spirit form and grab my heart and just 
broke it wide open. I saw him split it in half. And I looked in the in, in the middle of my heart and I saw the purest form of love I'd ever seen. I, I didn't understand it, but it was, you know, without blemish, no sin. It was pure love. And that's when he said, you love them, don't you? And I said, yes, sir. He said, doesn't matter what they've done either, does it? I said, no, sir. He said, I love them too. I need someone to tell them for me. And see, back in the court hearing, I had said, what are you doing with my life? He said, it's not yours anymore. You gave it to me, remember? And I had just rededicated a week before I was jailed. And I was like, oh, no. Well, here he had me showing me the call that he's got on me. So I came back to town after I was bonded out by my buddies and all. And I felt this call of God to, to witness to, you know, the inmates in the prison systems. And I felt, you know, I had something special to tell them. And, you know, I have more to the story. I heard many, many more things that are coming in part two that were, you know, said to me during that time. I, I was in the, the kitchen, you know, being trusted for three and a half days. I've never been happier in my life. I scrubbed dishes for 180 inmates. And I was just, you know, it is more blessed to give than receive. I was blessed beyond measure. And I said, this is it. I didn't want to go home to my wife and son and all. I was stolen. My affection was stolen by my love for these souls. I was like, I don't care about my wife and, and my taxidermy and my customers and all anymore. This is what I want to do with my life. So, you know, I knew the call was real. Well, my preacher downplayed it, my pastor, and he was jealous that I'd heard from God. And he's a preacher never hears from God. He, he wouldn't have known God if God walked up and kicked him in the butt. But <laughs> You know, he told me, no, oh, Chaplain Ray down here in Fort Worth, Tank County, he's got that all sewed up. You can't get in with them guys. He just downplayed it. Well, you know, I know what he was. You know, I know what, he, what spirit he was of. He was jealous. But I didn't see it taking this long. But now I see what's going on. I'm going to tell that. I'm telling it now. I want everybody to already know out there in this podcast realm. And while I'm here in Georgetown, I'm going to drop off the first load of books to these inmates. Now, this testimony is not coming in part one, obviously, but it's coming in part two and with everything else that God said for me to tell them. And so that's coming. That's only a small facet of, of my testimony. I, I've got some nuclear warheads I'm, I'm not free to release yet, but <laughs> that's why I'm here as well. This, you know, the steps of the righteous are ordered of the Lord, and you having me down here, you moving back down here may even be the hand of God because he pulled me back down here to begin this prison outreach to the inmates, and it's going to start right here where he gave me that word, in Georgetown, Texas, Williamson County Jail. It, just, so, you know, it is. It really is. You know. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Where can people pick up the books? Mine's website, same as the you know before the stories are lost, and same way my Gmail, everything's before you can Google me, they can find me. Before the stories are lost dot com. Yeah, mm -hmm. and now I've got it up on Amazon Kindle now too. What about you, Charlie? For me, www.princeofposers.com. But um, I've even offered. 2% of my sales to Operation Game Thief. I don't think they've took me serious. Maybe now. But I you know, told them to send me the information for the tax write-off and everything on it, and, and I'll begin to make the donations. And I haven't heard from them. They're supposed to Gmail me an app and everything. But maybe they'll do that now because I was serious. I meant what I said. I've talked with them. And, you know, they may just wrote me off. But... You know, the wall needs to come down between me and official, you know, law and order people because 
it's over. The outlaw hunting days are just the stink bait. God's using me to lure a big audience to hear my testimony. Then it's a big one. So they, they better get ready because after it's out, there won't be no stopping. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for jumping on. This is awesome. Uh, I appreciate it very much. I'm great being there. My buddy get to see my buddy again. You know? Yeah. Charlie. <laughs> yeah, a lot of my close friends call me Charlie. Thank you guys so much for checking out the Hunter's Advantage podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you guys so much, and we'll see you in the next episode.